0: G. It's the Airline Pilot Guy.
1: Airline Pilot Guy, episode 323. Yeah, in the sky. It's
0: the airline
1: pilot guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the APG headquarters studio in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on 10 May 2018. In today's show, a vintage airplane makes successful dead-stick landing on a UK beach. Raccoons in the ductwork. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, another of our aircraft is missing. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 323 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast and I am a captain for a major U.S. legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today from her beautiful lakeside cottage in South Carolina, doctor, Doctor. doctor, Doctor. skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph.
2: Hey Captain Jeff, so nice to be back here with you today, and Captain Nick. And really looking forward to a great show.
3: 323.
1: Awesome to see you and also joining us from his stately No, from his country estate outside of London. Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, and now Captain for an international airline based in London.
4: Captain Nick. Hello there, Jeff. Hi Steph. I prefer stately countries. Sounds quite nice. <laughs> but I know yes, we're setting plan. our achievement levels as low as usual and, again, failing to hit them. <laughs> That's what
1: it's all about at the APG.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was asked for help today to, to provide assistance, and I feel like I've already failed in the very short <laughs> time of there today. So I told I mean, you, you weren't going to get much help from me today, Captain Jeff, and, and proof is in the pudding there.
1: Sorry. Well, you know, we, we here set the bar kind of low, about halfway up the... You know, 50% is what we're always shooting for. And, you know, sometimes we attain that.
2: Sometimes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not very often, but we certainly try. And we have a lot of fun attempting it anyway. Indeed. Oh, so how has everything been with you, Dr. Steph?
2: Oh, everything has been very good. Thank you for asking. It's been a very, very nice week here in South Carolina. Had a chance to do a little bit of flying on Monday. And actually, it really wasn't me flying. I had a a good friend of mine who uh, was taking his instrument check ride yesterday. And he passed. So congratulations to him. And wait, wait, just
1: to make sure that we're he didn't pass away, but he passed the check ride. Passed the check ride. Okay. Okay. Yes. yes. Just want to make sure. All,
2: all happy news here. Okay. Um, but he wanted to go out and practice some approaches earlier this week before his check ride. So I went and went, did a little flying with him and was the safety pilot. So he was, you know, under the hood the whole time behind the foggles, looking at everything inside. Um, the cockpit there doing his approaches. Everything looked great. I did my best to try and distract him on occasion, which I was successful at once, but um, (laughs) it wasn't really the intention. But anyway, it gave me a good chance to try out um, the device that Sean gave you, correct? That um, is correct. Yeah. ADS-B receiver. Oh, look at that. If you're watching the video, if you're watching the video, this is it. So cool. Yeah, these are the ones he builds with the basically off-the-shelf components. Most people will, or most, Pilots, anyway, might be familiar with the uh, Stratus, which is the commercially available one, which is kind of a smaller device. Um, probably, I don't know if you're watching the video. Yay, big! That's hopeful for our audio listeners. But <laughs> yeah. how big yay, big? yay! 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 yay. <laughs> <laughs> not not very large. I mean, probably the size of one of these power bank battery packs, like what's attached here. But um, also, it's a pretty pricey device. Um, so this one is actually much. More cost efficient, and I had a chance to try it out. It uses, I think, open source software and then available off the ho- off the shelf hardware components and antenna. And I followed the instructions that came in the box with it. I powered it on, and it has its own, you know, local Wi Fi signal or signal that it emits. So you uh, connect to your Wi Fi on your um, device, and in my case, I use a an iPad Mini, which I have here, and it comes up right away. And you connect to that, and then it pretty much seamlessly integrates with ForeFlight. Which was really nice. So then, when you pull up your maps on ForeFlight, all of a sudden you have traffic. Um, so all traffic, commercial traffic, any, anyone that's got ADSB out, um, including we were um, doing some approaches here in Rock Hill, which is the airport closest to me. And there was a student. I think she was a student pilot in the pattern, based on the way she was doing her pattern work. Let's hope, um, right? I'm taking a, taking a guess there, um, but you know, she was making a lot of. Radio calls. We were not always sure that she was hearing our radio calls. we will just say that. But it was nice because then I could see her on the map, and it was very helpful in finding her quickly in the tra- traffic pattern as we were coming in on our uh, practice ILS approaches, and it, it worked really nice. So, um, so far, all positive reviews. It it connected seamlessly and it was uh, very straightforward. Um, the the suction cups on the back here stick really nicely to the window of a Cessna 172, and the signal was good. So
1: excellent. Compared um, now, with what I've
2: seen, I've, I've seen the Stratus in action. I, I don't own one. Um, the, the smaller, uh, more readily available, I guess, commercial device, um, But or more expensive, more, more expensive commercial device. Cause I, I guess these are available commercially now, I should say. Um, and it seems to do the exact same job as those do for Excellent. the cost. Well, so,
1: when, um, when Sean sent it to me, I, I put it together. Uh, not that it required really much. Putting together no, uh, at all. I
2: can, I can show the people watching the video what it requires putting together it comes with. Um, so the antenna came separate. So you have to screw in the antenna and they're specific. You have to correct, connect the correct antenna to the correct side, but they're labeled. So it tells you which one to do. There's a 1090 and a 978. And I'm assuming that uh, I watched the video uh, on his website and I think it refers to the frequencies that they're mm-hmm. receiving. So those just have to be on the correct side. Um, everything else is already basically assembled in this unit, you can stick the, or I think the suction cup apparatus is separate, but that just slides on. And then there's a separate power bank and it actually has a, let's see if I can put this in the video there. The output is right here. So as you connect the, or if you have the power bank strapped on the back of the unit, then you just,
5: you plug insert, it in,
2: plug it in and it powers up and there's a little Velcro strap to hold it together and that's it.
1: Yeah. So, when I was putting it together here um, at this desk, um, obviously I wasn't in an airplane and I uh, used um, uh, some kind of a. Uh, actually, I was using uh, accessing the unit from a web page because it was connected via Wi Fi. And so you could see all the stats and you can see all the different satellites it can see and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And even here inside my basement, it was picking up uh, ADS-B information from several Delta airlines flights flying overhead. Yep. So that was kind of yep. cool.
2: It works really well. Um, I guess he wants us to give out all this information, I'm sure. So, uh, Crewdog dog
1: electronics,
2: Crewdogelectronics.com, And this is the Stratux S T R A T U X ADSB dual band receiver. So, yeah. um, if you're interested, I, I, like I said, I've tested it the one time so far, I plan to try it out a few more times, but I was very impressed with how it works so far.
4: Excellent. Would you uh, would you fork out for one if uh, you uh, you know needed to step?
2: Oh, absolutely. I've been actually planning to get an ADS-B receiver for quite some time, um, and this one is substantially uh, more economical than some of the other available products. So I'd be very happy to purchase this.
1: We should actually. also add that it is a uh, attitude heading reference system all, as well yes. as an I didn't ADS-B. use any
2: of that that actual function. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: was- we we always say ahar's uh, because ahars. we like to make different words out of different a bunch of different words. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but uh, the, and that's not uh, just aviation. I guess a lot of industries do the same thing. Anyway, um, yes. it is basically provides you information about you know it's like a almost like an inertial platform or a gyro where it, it'll show you you know, your wings level and if your pitch is up or down or whatever.
4: So it's uh, pretty cool.
2: Yeah. I haven't, I haven't used that function of it yet, but I'll definitely check that out the next time I take it up.
1: All
4: right. Um, what does it actually use to generate that? I mean, does it kind of have
1: gyros in it? So No, it doesn't it have gyros, to- but it has like a accelerometers and um okay. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but uh, yeah, I'll have like, to do some research kind of on Like that. your phone, like your
4: iPhone, you know, it knows, you know, I'm holding it this way or that way. Yeah, well, that's a, reliant on gravity, so that's mm-hmm. not exactly ideal for an airplane. Well, I don't know, Nick. <laughs> I was just curious. Yeah. Ask Sean. if <laughs> you can, like, induce 1G wherever you are. <laughs> yeah.
2: Sure. Um, I was going to add something to that, and now I forgot what I was going to say.
1: Well, fine. Well, if you fine. remember, just you know. chime in. Yeah, the uh, the full setup is uh yeah, somewhere around two thirty two hundred and fifty US dollars. Two twenty nine ninety nine, I think oh, it would oh, that, that does sound reasonable. Yeah. yeah, yeah
4: much very
2: reasonable. very
0: reasonable.
1: So all right. And so you did your flying and uh how's work? Everything cool I uh, it's
2: just busy as usual. Yeah. So okay. I don't we're victims of our own success at this point in time, I think, which is oh. a good thing, but um it just seems like you never get a break anymore. Yeah.
1: Well, hopefully you'll get one soon, Steph.
2: Yes, I will. It is. Vacation is coming up.
1: Excellent. Captain Nick. Yes, sir. How have you been uh, this previous week?
4: I have been uh, tickety-boo, thank you very much. Uh, The weather has been beautiful. Uh, A lot of sunshine. I've been out with my camera, just getting my uh, hand back in because the the dog shooting season. coming up <laughs> sorry i should rephrase that dog, uh, dog, dog photography season. oh okay
2: <laughs> oh i thought maybe you were going to use your dogs for hunting or something like not hunt the dogs but hunt with the dogs. that's what dogs i don't know with be nick you're not really here, not really sure photography also yeah. I,
4: uh, when i have more spare time i'm definitely going to expand that part of uh, of my little business and go out and follow uh hunts shoots and uh because uh, that that kind of uh, photography is also very interesting. Uh, at the moment, I'm just taking individual commissions from people. But I've got one. Uh, I'm just waiting to find a suitable date, and I'll go ahead and do that. And, of course, been setting up uh, our little meetup for the uh, 22nd of this month. So this is the RAF, the May Museum meetup, the RAF Museum at Hendon. Uh, we're having a get-together there on Tuesday the 22nd. They're not that far away. Um, I'm going to plan to be there at about 10.30 in the morning. The museum opens at 10 and closes at 6 in the evening. I'll be there between about 10.30 and 3.30. So if you want to catch us and the other APGs that are um, coming together to wander around the museum together, then uh, that's the time to look for uh, I'm going to be kicking around uh, just inside the main entrance, which is uh, the area called Milestones, uh, just um, behind the arena and car park two. Um, and uh, we'll just meander around together, I think, after that. We're obviously going to stop at some point uh, in the cafe for lunch. Um, so I'm um, there plenty of time. If you can't uh, make the morning, come for the afternoon. If you can't, make the afternoon come for the morning and brilliant if you could do the whole day would be fabulous um the museum doesn't charge to enter there is a small fee if you want to park your car somewhere between three and four pounds depending on how long you want to park for um so fingers crossed it's all going to be a nice day it looks like we're going to have a number of people there um i hope it doesn't get too big because uh, if it's over ten, I'm supposed to tell the museum we're bringing a large party. So I always I'll pretend that we're less than ten. So uh, anyway, uh, Nev's going to come with some audio visual gear. So uh, everyone dress up nice and smart. All right. What
2: was the date on that one more time?
4: Just twenty second of this month. Twenty second. Okay. May the twenty second, Tuesday, May the twenty second. I think. Mm-hmm. There you go. So that, that's it for me. Uh tomorrow I've got more medical stuff. On Saturday, I'm doing a 340 simulator, just a single session to update my 340 rating. Uh and um then it's back to kicking my heels, waiting for uh the time to elapse so that I can start flying again. Very good. Yeah.
1: I was just while you were talking about the meetup, I'm thinking. Let's see. Have I had any meetups? I I just got back from a four-day trip, which was a wonderful trip, by the way. Uh, The first day was the longest day. We went up from Atlanta to Hartford, Connecticut, Springfield, Massachusetts, then back to Atlanta, and then back up to uh, Bradley International up there. And so it was kind of a long day of flying, uh, about roughly six hours of flying total. And then uh, the next day, one leg, one short leg under two hours to Detroit. The following day, one leg, about two hours, from Detroit back to Bradley International. And then one leg home today, about two hours, back to Atlanta. And uh, the co-pilot and I were saying to each other, Wow, wouldn't it be nice if we flew these kind of trips every week? And I said, Yes, it would be very nice. Anyway, I was thinking about the fact that you were talking about an upcoming meetup, Captain Nick. And I'm thinking... Oh, yeah, I did have a meetup on Tuesday, got a text from the other Captain Jeff, the good looking one. And he said, hey, I noticed you were going to be in uh, uh, a Bradley International. He said, I got to lay over there as well. And I get in about uh, seven o'clock and let's, you know, uh, have a beer or have dinner or whatever. I thought that's a great idea. So uh, Jeff did join me at the Sheraton Hotel in the actual Bradley International Terminal. I did actually take my Zoom recorder with me. Now I did not prepare for uh, me to play this, and so I've just connected the recorder to uh, an input into my mixer, and I'm hoping that this is gonna play for you. I bet it won't though. Here, let me play it. Can you hear that? No. no. Okay. Uh, it's because I have to do some routing changes. Hey, what if I do this? No, right. Windsor Locks. Windsor it doesn't sound very good, but I'll put in the real audio.
2: Yes, you can. You can edit this all in post. Yeah.
6: Okay. Let me. Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> words, no, he will No, I will. This is going to sound horrible. <laughs> a it.
2: It's a me... fun. It's fun when I say that, and then he clearly doesn't.
1: <laughs> well, but some, a lot of mostly I do, but sometimes I don't. Okay. Hey, folks, in Bradley. Well, Hartford. No. Windsor locks, Windsor, Lo- that's one of those old things that uh, you really don't run into anymore because now we, everybody has these electronic flight bags. And so it's just easy to figure out, you know, how to get the airport diagram and the approach plates and everything else for, uh, for uh, Bradley international, which is in Windsor locks, Connecticut, serving Hartford, Connecticut, Springfield, Massachusetts, and surrounding communities. Anyway, I'm here and uh, I got a text from Jeff, the other, the good looking one, Captain Jeff. And uh, he said, Hey, I noticed you're going to be in, uh, in, at Bradley. And, uh, he said, I'm staying near the airport. And I said, I'm staying in the airport at the Sheraton. And he goes, okay, well then, uh, let's, let's do dinner. And I said, okay. So, uh, here we are, uh, actually in my room. So, you know, he came in deadheaded in from Chicago and, uh, he's in uniform and, you know, he's, he tries not to drink too much beer in uniform, and uh, said, "Come up to the room. You, <laughs> <laughs> you know, take your uniform shirt off. Put your bags here. Let's go downstairs, grab a bite to eat and a beer." And that's what we did. And uh, we just came back up here. He's now back in his uniform, grabbing his bag. He's going to head over to uh, his uh, nearby hotel, a double tree here. And uh, but it was so nice that um, Jeff happened to catch the fact that I was here in at Bradley overnight and uh yeah so we just uh, had a great time we've been talking all kinds of good stuff
7: it's always been fun to get together with Jeff and this was absolutely pure dumb
1: luck that we got to do this and uh we had the same thing for dinner we both had lobster rolls
8: imagine that different beers but lobster rolls and it was just good catching up i haven't seen jeff in a while last time I saw him was down in atlanta and just you sign up for where's captain jeff and
1: he pops up every once in a while on your twi- twitter feed and there we are so for the BFFs, uh, there's pictures there. Jen's happy now. There's both of us. <laughs> so, Yeah, I hope you're happy. But, uh, yeah, we had a grand time. Uh, we both have, uh, as mentioned, uh, very early flights in the morning. I think mine's an hour before his, but I, at least I'm here at the airport, so I don't feel too bad. And uh, just wanted to do that, to, just do a quick meetup audio, and that's it. So until next time, adios.
8: Tailwinds and clear skies for everybody.
1: Bye-bye. There you go. Sounds so professional. Yes. Excellent Absolutely. <laughs> very good indeed. Now, if you're listening to the audio version of the show, which is most of you, it'll sound nice and clear and uh, not very tinny like those of us on video right now heard it. But uh, anyway. All right. And uh, that's pretty much it with me. I uh, just got home from my trip today, uh, earlier today, and uh, scheduled to go back out on Monday for another four day. Unfortunately, it's not quite as nice as the trip that I just returned from, which I returned, but it was, it's, it's not bad. So got the weekend off. Nice. Yeah. All right. Anything else we should do before we uh, head over to
4: the coffee fund? I'll just wish uh, Dana the best because he's uh, still giving him trouble. I gather. So uh, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, you get better soon, Dana.
1: Yeah. We're, Good, good thoughts coming your way, Dana.
2: Medication is a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah. Oh, and you know, I just realized that we do have something else here before we move to the coffee fund. This from Grant. He says, hi, everyone. I'll be in Rome for work from the morning of the 3rd of June to about midday on the 8th of June. I'll have time to catch up on Sunday the 3rd and Monday the 4th. Then we'll be buried in the work event on Tuesday and Wednesday. Including the obligatory dinner event on the Tuesday, Thursday the seventh should have some time in the afternoon evening. Once some meetings finish, then Friday is heading to the airport from about eight o'clock in the morning. Are any of you or your audience likely to be in Rome around this time for a catch-up? Matt, and excuse me, hmm, Matt and Owen from PTUK will be catching up on the Monday and then hanging around until the Wednesday note I'm not on slack and barely have time to check Facebook every other day or so, so Thus emails or whatsapp uh, and he put a number in here so I'm assuming that we can put that in the show notes uh, if you want to contact Grant and uh, the anyway he said those are the best ways to contact me. Do you have any recommendations for letting people know regarding a possible meetup that doesn't involve me joining slack? For One post in there, okay. Uh, so, I guess that was kind of an internal note to us. Um, no, I I think the best way, uh, would be to contact uh, Grant via email, which we'll put in the uh, show notes and uh, we'll put the uh, WhatsApp number. I guess that's what he wants us to do, right?
2: Uh, maybe check with him before you do that. Just
1: yeah, just I better do that, but yeah, okay. All right, so if you're in Rome, Jenny. Um yeah, uh check check it out and meet up with Grant. All right. That does it, I think, in our intro portion, and now I think time for me to try to push the right button.
8: Johnny, how much more coffee?
1: No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea.
7: I love the APG
1: community. community. Coffee and tea, and, and the job, job and me. A cup, cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, we play the Java Jive. This was uh, recorded by the Jeff Smith uh, because it's our way of talking about your way to support the show financially, called the Coffee Fund, and. Uh, you can learn about how to join the Coffee Fund cadre by heading over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. And since the last episode, we've had a few folks join us on the cadre. We're in the cadre. Uh, using the Classic Fund, Mazuz Karim, Aaron Kiefer, Jeff and Anisa Moeller, and Stephen Abru, or Abru. Uh, and then the other way to do it is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. Uh, we have a new producer, Francois Schott, and a new executive producer, Dennis Schubert. So welcome new patrons. Thank you everyone for contributing to the Coffee Fund. And again, information about how you can join the group by heading over to airlinepilotguide.com coffee. We thank you so much.
7: Stand by for news.
1: I just noticed, uh, Stephen. How do I pronounce that? Is it Abrew, Abrew, (laughs) Abrew, Hamburg, Hamburg?
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. Stephen,
1: (laughs) maybe spell that out phonetically for me. Stephen, Uh, the newest producer is uh, in our chat room. Alpha,
0: Bravo,
2: Romeo, Echo.
4: He must get a lot of jokes about coffee, about or or beer,
2: like coffee. brew. yeah, yeah, like coffee. coffee. Abrew,
4: okay, Stephen, Abrew.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Now back to the show. Uh, let's start off with this item. And then, and by the way, the news folder is very scant, scantly loaded with news this week, which is a uh, kind of that's all right, kind of nice actually. Sometimes
2: yeah. in, in aviation, no news is good news.
1: Yes.
4: Yeah. Definitely.
1: And I think all this news is pretty good. Um, well, at first, this didn't start off to be a good thing. Uh, there was a, a, a gentleman. And uh, passenger uh, Zach Rocky, uh, 47, from Exeter, was um, flying his vintage aircraft. And, you know, I was never able to find out, and I wasn't able to identify the airplane based on the pictures and the video. Uh, But it looks like a World War I vintage aircraft. Do you recognize what that
4: is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a Moraine uh, Solnia MS-315. So 1932, a French uh, military trainer. Now, did you get
1: that by just looking at that, or did you find that somewhere else?
4: Oh, Jeff, ye of little (laughs) faith.
2: Okay, The registration's on there, but I Uh could Google through
4: No, I did a little bit of uh, undercover work. I I discovered that uh, he works, this gentleman, uh, Zach, works for uh, AT Aviation. And if you go on their website, uh, you can find a description of Zach because uh, he trained as a traditional toolmaker, and subsequently developed his skills into the aviation world. Zach is a highly experienced vintage tailwheel pilot, and can often be seen flying R nineteen thirty two MS three one five. Not the easiest aircraft in the world to fly! Exclamation mark. There you go. And it didn't even sound like you were reading that. <laughs> all. That was he, he it and knew Absolutely. It and, it. and you know
2: what? Not the easiest aircraft in the world to fly, but for a forest landing, he made it look pretty darn good. He did. Yeah. yeah
1: so they were flying around and the engine started sputtering and then it just stopped and uh, they were out over the water. And he spotted a place to put it down on this uh, rocky, it looks like a rocky beach. Um, Sidmouth Beach at Jacob's Ladder. I have no idea what any of that means. Um, but um, put the Devin, thing down. Devin. <laughs> huh? Devin. Devin. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. Um, uh, Found several places on YouTube with uh, actual different, uh, several people had their phones ready to uh, videotape or not tape, video, make a video of uh, this guy coming in, in his vintage aircraft and, uh, did a really nice job of landing it on this beach. And I don't even think it got a scratch or if it did, it would be a very minor, uh, scratch and, uh, and they ended up, um, because it would have been a risky and, uh, I don't know, an interesting thing to try to fly that thing out of there. And, uh, uh, because it's not the best, uh, landing strip, uh, they decided to dismantle the aircraft, take the wings off and such and and cart it out of there, I guess.
4: So. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty sensible idea, quite honestly. Although I think a bit of a trog up uh, the cliffs to get it onto uh, the nearest road. But uh, perhaps that's why it's called Jacob's Ladder. I suspect that's the sort of name of the bay that this rather stony beach is in.
1: Yeah, so I was, um, you know, I I, when I watched the first video of it, it, it was like, Really a tiny little speck in the background, and you could see this little thing alighting uh, on the beach. And then um, I found the, another couple of videos, which I'll put in the show notes for you, uh, that you can watch. Uh, and uh, one of the videos was like the people were right there. In fact, it, the thing almost went right over their heads as they were walking down the beach. I guess this is a dog walking beach. Uh, but uh, anywho, uh, interesting story and a uh, happy outcome.
4: Yeah, he'd been off to try and apparently sell the aircraft at a uh, sort of a display or a gathering of uh, like aircraft, but he hadn't managed to sell it. So he was on his way back home. I think it's probably a good job the prospective buyer
2: <laughs> did did not purchase.
4: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, on his first flight.
2: <laughs> yeah, better. In first flight, you're gonna have an engine failure and have to land. Yeah. Uh...
4: And I, and I did notice that uh, the, uh, this, uh, 80 aviation website that, uh, ZAC, the company that Zach uh, goes, uh, with, um, they have, uh, they sell a lot of aircraft and, uh, they've got quite a list. And I noticed that this aircraft is no longer on the list of uh, machines for huh. sales. So. <laughs>
1: they have to fix it first, I guess. Yeah, I
4: guess, guess they do. All right.
1: Excellent. Um, second item in our news folder. An Air Canada flight is delayed by a raccoon. An Air Canada flight in Saskatoon was delayed due to an unwanted furry passenger on Thursday. Oh, how rude! A raccoon. Those raccoons—they
4: just <laughs> have have I no manners. you were supposed to wear these things on your head, like a only
2: hat. if you're like what was his name?
4: Davy Crockett.
2: Davy Crockett. Crockett. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
4: Davy Crockett. You know, for for years when I was a kid, I thought he had three ears.
1: What the tail was an ear.
4: No, no, no. Because it was oh. a, there was a TV series. I remember yeah. Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Ah, uh, the always frontier thought a, must have had the <laughs> on. If you don't know what a frontier
1: is, then <laughs> I can see. As, but, as yeah. a
2: small small children, may not know what frontiers are.
1: Davy Crockett. Okay. Davy Crockett, King of the. I'm not familiar. Wild frontier. Yeah. Well, it's before your time. Gotcha. Before yeah. your time, you have, have to though. be our age. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, a raccoon was seeking some cool comfort inside the hose of an air conditioning unit, when his slumber was interrupted by the unit being attached to the plane. Ooh, rude! From there, the raccoon ran into the air duct system of the plane, delaying the flight several hours. (laughs) Passengers, luckily, it was still alive, so it would have been a bad thing. They don't
4: have a raccoon-proof grill. I guess
1: not.
2: Seems like it'd be an easy thing to install. I don't
1: know. <laughs> Passengers initially realized something was wrong when a group of flight staff and an animal control unit were gathered outside the plane. Damien Lee, a passenger on the flight from Saskatoon to Toronto, said the flight had two delays. The first one was due to baggage, and that was announced, so people understood it was a regular delay. Uh, with the second one, it took about an hour for them to actually announce what was going on. I guess they didn't want to scare everybody on the airplane. <laughs> Uh, let's see the most, let's see this, the flight was supposed to leave at 2:50 PM, but didn't take off until 10 PM. Most passengers thought that the whole incident was funny rather than frustrating. There were probably two or three people that were upset, like cussing and saying they'll never fly again. But for the most part, people just thought it was a funny thing and dealt with it. Passengers were given food vouchers and were offered a discounted rate on a future flight. No hard feelings were had against the airline. Another quote. I respect the effort Air Canada crew is putting in to finding this raccoon. Uh, in an email from Air Canada, a representative said, we understand that the raccoon ran off after exiting the duct system, presumably back to the safety of the wilderness where he belongs. Hopefully the raccoon has learned a lesson about places that are not suitable for taking naps.
2: Yeah. Teach a lesson to those raccoons.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's always a moral to the story, right? Okay. Yeah,
4: Either That I'll turn them into hats.
2: Yeah. Yeah, probably the latter.
1: Yeah. All right. That is it. Believe it or not, we're already finished with the news. That means we're going to be able to tackle more of your feedback. Mm -hmm. Liz, get ready to add some more stuff in that uh, feedback folder. I have a feeling. Not just
2: yet. Just just make sure. Yeah.
1: Well, just think about it anyway. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, I'll play this one for a second time on today's show.
7: Stand by for news.
1: Nope. Not that one. (laughs) This one. (laughs) Yeah.
6: Captain. Incoming message.
1: All righty. What a bunch of
2: professionals we are. Yes,
1: we are. <laughs> yeah, it's like I've just started doing this podcast thing like a couple weeks ago.
2: How many years now?
1: Uh, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> 2009. Huh. Okay. Ralph sent in some feedback. He said, "I'd love to hear your input on this event." What event, Ralph?
8: As passengers got off Southwest flight 3461 Saturday afternoon, many, like Marie Wary, are thankful just to be back on solid ground.
6: It just felt like I was about to lift off. I felt like, okay, it's done. I'm about to see Jesus. I'm about to go see Mama, baby Jesus. I'm about to see Papa God. And then we're going to go see... You, you actually
8: Jesus. thought that you were yes! going to die. Yes! It all happened as the flight, flying from Fort Lauderdale, was trying to land at Armstrong International. You can see in this flight map, the airport was located in the thick of the storm. WWL's Lauren Bale was on the flight.
5: And we came through the clouds, and the plane was just tilting back and forth, and um, it was going all over the place. People were screaming, people were crying.
8: But then, through the thunder and the lightning, the pilot pulled up and circled, eventually making it safely out of the storm, landing in Panama City.
6: The pilot was amazing. He was very calm. He reassured us that he got this. Thunder, lightning, you couldn't see
2: anything. There was no visibility. And right, right as they were, we were about to land, he pulled right back up and,
3: and went right back out.
8: After a short stay on the ground, the flight made it back safely around 2.30. We reached out to Southwest to see why the flight wasn't canceled to begin with. They just said safety is the company's top priority. Uh, an unusual flight
7: for sure oh for sure i haven't
8: experienced anything like that in a long time paul dudley eyewitness news well
9: the airline is reaching out to customers on the flight and southwest has apologized right now they say they're gathering reports
2: from the flight and that they will be reaching out to all ticket holders
1: i wonder how we ended up hearing about this story um, there was a journalist on board
8: wwl's lauren bale was on the flight <laughs> Yeah, so good. <laughs> ding, ding ding, yep. ding, ding, ding. Do I win a prize? <laughs> yes, you do. Okay,
1: good. You get to be more. You get to do more hosting on the airline pilot guy show. Yay! Right. Way to go, Steph. <laughs> That's What I wanted. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what do we think about this, Ralph Walker? Well, I would imagine that uh, maybe not quite as bad as this, but this sort of thing probably <laughs> happens a lot. Uh, where we uh, are dispatched to fly somewhere and you end up getting into some unstable conditions. Uh, It's kind of unfair, I think, to um, show, uh, as they mentioned here in this uh, coverage, the um, flight-aware display of the aircraft's path and then the superimposed weather because I think flight-aware has to kind of do an average of where the weather is during that entire flight. Uh so uh you know, I don't know exactly where the where the storm system was when uh, the pilots attempted to land at uh, New Orleans. But uh obviously it was uh they they gave it a shot and decided it was too unsafe to try to do it again. So they did the right thing, diverted to their alternate, refueled and then you know, let the weather subside a little bit and then make another attempt now some of you may ask why the heck you know wouldn't you just cancel the flight or just stay at the uh, origin airport longer and wait for the weather to pass well uh, i'm not sure how it works in the uk and in europe but for a large scheduled airline like southwest or delta or acme uh, we launch flights intending to land at the destination um, but, and then, you know, we add enough fuel to hold, to allow for, you know, uh, weather situations. And then we also add fuel for an alternate destination if one's needed. And, you know, just going out there with that, with that effort to, to make it to where the people want to go, because they bought tickets to go from wherever they started to uh, New Orleans. Um, forgot already where, where this is yeah, going. New Orleans. Yeah. They, they stopped in Panama City. Not sure exactly where it started though, but anyway, Fort Lauderdale. But, oh, Lauderdale. Okay, um, and uh, that's just the 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 nature of this business. We just go off. We we intend to make an effort to get you to where you want to go, and even knowing that the weather, unless it's extremely, um, you know, unlikely that you're not going to make it in, uh, the airline is going to make an attempt and then analyze the situation when they're closer to the airport. And maybe some people might say perhaps in this case, they shouldn't have even attempted an approach and a landing at the airport during the time. But sometimes things really are dynamic Mm
9: -hmm. and
1: you're really not sure how quickly things are moving and whether or not you're going to have a window of opportunity or not. And uh, I can guarantee you, even though the passengers felt like this was uh, like they were close to crashing, I think as, one or more of the passengers said uh, that uh, it was not quite as bad as they thought it was. Um, I don't know. What, what are your feelings about this crew?
2: No, I feel, I feel the same way as you, Jeff. I, you know, especially for passengers who are not pilots or who have difficulty with being in situations where they're not in control of the situation. You know, anything that feels outside of that realm of control can feel very intimidating and scary and you know like you're not going to be able to survive the event so i can certainly understand and appreciate their perspective but i don't think any professional airline crew would attempt an approach if they didn't think it was safe in the first place so there was some reason why they thought it was safe to attempt it in the first place and it turned out that it wasn't suitable for landing and they did what they're supposed to do and went back to holding and diverted and stopped for some fuel and then completed the journey so kind of a non-event but you know, reporter on on the airline. So
4: We'll often um, look at a forecast and uh, assuming the forecast isn't blatantly outside the aircraft's limits, we'll launch because uh, frequently the forecast is, uh, the actual weather is not as bad as forecast uh, and we get in without any problems or you might hold for half an hour and the weather moves through and then you get in and the flight's done and everyone goes gets where they want to be uh, if you cancel early and the weather doesn't arrive, then everyone goes, oh, what a useless damned airline. So you you can't win either way sometimes. Um, the, you leave it up to the crew to assess the situation, and uh, they obviously thought it was safe to make an attempt, and then they thought the appropriate thing was to divert. But quite honestly, there's very little drama attached to these uh, sort of events in the cockpit, uh, all the dramas happening with the journalists in the back. That's right.
2: And speaking of weather, I just noticed it was suddenly not bright sunshine outside my window anymore. So I pulled up the weather radar here and it looks like we have a little bit of oh, uh, look at that fun stuff coming this way in the next probably half hour or so. Oh, I hope it doesn't oh, take
1: out your electricity and your
2: internet. I, I, I hope not. It doesn't look that serious. Yeah. But if I disappear suddenly, that's why.
0: Oh, no. Ah.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, Ralph, there you have it. Um, We weren't there, so, you know, we're not really sure exactly what the situation looked like, but uh, I have a feeling that the passengers may have exaggerated a little bit. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Liz, you ever heard of her, our producer? Yes. She does a wonderful job. Thank you, Liz. Liz. We love you. And yes, we do. And uh, she very uh, carefully uh, and smartly placed this next piece of feedback in there because... Uh, it kind of it sort of relates to the one we discovered. covered um, talking about weather and uh, closing airports or not going to the destination or whatever. And well, let me just read this probably be best that way. This is from the New York Times. Airlines will be prohibited from sending planes to Kennedy Airport during winter storms like the one that caused chaos there in January unless they have received assurances The gates will be available on landing. The change is one of several. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey plans to announce on Monday to prevent a recurrence of the epic runway traffic jam that left hundreds of travelers stranded on planes for hours during the first weekend of 2018. The agency also will require better management of luggage at Kennedy after some travelers did not get their bags back for several days following the storm, nicknamed a bomb cyclone by meteorologists, That dropped several inches of snow on Queens. The announcement of the new procedures by the Port Authority, which operates the three big airports that serve New York City, comes about a month before the results of an investigation into the causes of the chaos at Kennedy are due. Ray LaHood, a former federal transportation secretary, is expected to release a report in May that will detail the breakdowns in operations at Kennedy and prescribe improvements. Rick Cotton, the executive director of the Port Authority, said the agency would not wait for Mr. LaHood's report to assert more control over the companies. Wait a minute. Let me reread that. Rick Cotton, the executive director of the Port Authority, said the agency would not wait for Mr. LaHood's report to assert more control over the companies that operate the six passenger terminals at Kennedy. Unlike operators of some other big United States airports, such as Boston Logan International, the Port Authority had ceded much of the responsibility for loading and unloading planes to the private operators of Kennedy's terminals. The proposed changes represent a much stronger hand on the part of the airport in terms of setting operating standards. He said that the Port Authority would make a stronger commitment to articulating performance standards and to enforcing them. The new rule on flights bound for Kennedy when a winter storm is forecast is an unusual restriction, the airline industry officials said. The managers at Kennedy may recommend the cancellation of flights scheduled to arrive when storm conditions are predicted to be severe. If an airline decides to launch a flight anyway, it will have to obtain an assurance from a terminal operator that a gate will be available when the plane touches down. That is a departure from standard practices, said Perry Flint, a spokesman for uh, for the International Air Transport Association, which represents airlines. In Europe, he said, airlines are required to have a landing slot, but not necessarily a gate reserved at destination airports. Mr. Cotton said he was not aware of another airport requiring prior assurance that a gate would be available. That restriction is appropriate at Kennedy, he said, because so much of, uh, of its traffic is long-haul flights from overseas. The need for it became apparent after Kennedy was overwhelmed in January with more planes arriving than some terminals could handle. In normal conditions, terminal operators and their airline tenants managed to get planes in and out of gates fast enough to keep up with the inbound traffic. But in the days after the snowstorm that swept up the East Coast on the 4th of January, frozen equipment and staffing shortages slowed operations and left some planes parked for hours without gate assignments. In some cases, the Port Authority had to send staircases and buses to rescue passengers from stranded planes. So it goes on in this article to talk about all this stuff. And uh, again, the link will be in the show notes. But uh, what do you think about this, Captain Nick? Because uh, you're uh, one of those long haul pilots that uh, end up flying in and out of John F. Kennedy International quite
4: a bit. I've no idea how they're going to make it work, Jeff. It just doesn't make sense because we launch um, six or seven hours before our arrival time. How can you have a guarantee that there will be a gate available available? Because they, if in their minds they're thinking, right, well, we'll have this gate, 5 Alpha for uh, the um, Acme Red flight. And when you get there, the aircraft that was supposed to vacate is unserviceable, stuck there, or they haven't been able to sweep the taxiways clear of snow, so it's stuck there, or the pilot's sick, uh, the passengers lost, something you can never guarantee that. Aircraft are going to move away from gates on time and make a gate available for you. What you can do is trust that the flow rate will be suitable to give you a gate. Now, if there is no gate when we get there, then, I, you know, you obviously you can't park. Now, what you might need is more remote parking and better busing so that that's in there as a backup. But, uh, I, I mean, Kennedy always seems to have a problem with this. Um, which is why frequently you you, uh, come off your gate uh, and made to join a whole queue of aircraft because there's no gate holding. Um, Because, uh, in other words, you're not required to stay on your gate until there's no queue to take off. Um, Because those gates are, there's so few gates, it's essential that you vacate the gate. Often, I've been known to join a queue of 50 or 60 aircraft queuing for takeoff and we're all there running our engines because we've had to get off our gates to let other aircraft occupy them so you know jfk is an airport that is like some others uh straining at uh, the seams they want more and more aircraft in there to generate income but they don't seem to have the room to accommodate them
1: now you need more gates more terminals more gates and that is expensive yep. and Airplanes, you know, 50, 60 in a queue, running those engines is not
8: We're going, green.
1: going green, if We're you ask me. Nope.
4: Not taking care of our earth. No, it's certainly not. And it's costing the, ECRA, the uh, airlines a lot of money as well. And uh, I feel sorry for the passengers when you say, right, well, this is a six-hour flight. We'll get you in at such and such in the morning. And then you spend an hour taxiing out. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You're already late before you've even uh, thought of taking it.
1: I didn't see anywhere in the article about you know if there were going to be fines or penalties if you know the the, the airlines you know to send an airplane even if they don't have an assurance or a guarantee that a, a gate's going to yeah. be
4: open. I don't know. All, all sounds like something that's been, uh, plucked out of nowhere, this yeah. concept without really putting a full, um, you know, amount of thought behind
1: it. Trust us. We're, we're, we're changing things and this will never, ever happen again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, mean, exactly. I mean,
2: it sounds like something that came from an administrative level and not necessarily on a practical level. Yeah. Not that administrators can't be practical, but, um, I see it frequently where people without, you know, their hands in the day-to-day operations of things. Decide on policy and it doesn't always make sense.
1: So. But I, I tell you, you know, we make a big effort at Acme uh, flying into Atlanta to, you know, ensure that we follow restrictions as far as, you know, not sometimes, you know, we'll we'll hold a flight at our origin for a while because the gate space is not going to be available when we arrive and or we may actually Not have as much headwind as we thought or have more tailwind or whatever. You know, it
2: it, it probably makes more sense from an airline operational point of view than from the actual airport point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, But that requires individual airline buy-in.
1: And last year we had a couple examples of um, situations like the the, the power that got cut off uh, because of the underground fire uh, where we had, you know, many, many airplanes and lots and lots of passengers out there and they couldn't get them off the airplanes right away because there were no gates because they couldn't push the airplanes mm-hmm. off the gates. It was just a big mess. Thankfully I didn't get to participate in that as he smiles. Woo-hoo. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it was a mess anyway. Well, we'll just hope for the best JFK and we'll see if that works. Um, we talked on an earlier episode about uh, Uber for airplanes and how, that was um, something that was kind of included in one of the latest funding bills for the Federal Aviation Administration, I believe, and uh, we, we were discussing that a bit. And Sean Hempel sent us some audio feedback regarding uh, per, perhaps a different point of view.
5: Hello, APG crew. Sean from Portland, Oregon here, private pilot, longtime listener, and first-time feeder backer. Just a quick thought on the recent discussion in episode 321 about Uber for airplanes. The proposed amendment was quickly abandoned and not included in the final text of the House-passed version of the FAA reauthorization bill. I agree that the proposal, which would have dropped the requirement for private pilots to cover their pro-rata share of expenses, was ill-conceived and short-sighted. However... I do think the notion of allowing pilots to announce their intentions to fly a trip and accept passengers to help cover a portion of the costs of that trip should be reconsidered. Pro-rata cost-sharing is one of the few ways aspiring airline pilots can offset the oppressive cost of obtaining the required 1,500 hours of flight time. The FAA already allows for semi-public requests for passengers or fellow pilots to join me on a flight. I do it currently when I volunteer to fly animal rescues. If another pilot wants to join me, we'll split the cost and, if possible, split the legs. Or, at the local FBO, I can post a trip on the physical bulletin board asking if anyone is looking for a ride to one of our nearby destinations. The technology gap is that currently I can't publish that same message on a ride-sharing app and accept a cost-sharing passenger that way. I'm not a lawyer, but I believe the only difference in insurance liability between posting in an app and posting on a physical bulletin board would be to the company that makes the app. My liability as a pilot remains the same. If I take a passenger and am in compliance with all applicable regulations and insurance requirements, I'm covered under my own aircraft or renter's insurance policy. My thinking is, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater on this one. Pro-rata cost-sharing is perfectly legal and can be a terrific way to help pilots gain valuable flight hours at reduced expense. Any private pilot will be well-versed in what they can and can't accept. I personally have had to hand cash back to friends who offered me money for fuel after a local sightseeing flight. The rules are quite clear, and if not followed, the consequences sufficiently severe to discourage any rational pilot from trying to illegally act like a for-profit operation. So, while the proposed amendment had major issues, I'm not sure it was entirely without merit. I would suggest that as a flying community, we consider whether there may be ways in which technology can be utilized to help pilots reduce the cost of gaining valuable flight experience without creating an additional or undue risk to the flying public. Thank you. Love your show and keep up the great work.
1: Thank you, Sean, for that different point of view. And uh, you make some very good points there. Um, What do you think, Steph?
5: So uh,
2: yeah, the pro rata sharing is is perfectly legal, perfectly fine. Um, there is a caveat in the FARs um, that says that in order for you to be able to participate in pro rata sharing. So I mean, just for for example, what does that mean? Say you're the pilot, you have two friends who want to go with you on a flight, um, you have to pay no less than your pro rata share of the flight. So you have to divide that three ways and you have to pay, you know, one cent more than that one third cost of the flight if you're the pilot basically and that you know those costs can go towards fuel they can go towards maintenance costs airport expenditures oil uh things like that so um anything that you're directly paying for for that flight so if you don't own the plane you're not paying for maintenance and such so you can't collect fees for for that um but you can't split the gas basically um it doesn't apply if you don't have a common purpose for the flight so the example is, say you're going on a trip to go to a wedding that you're personally, you're, you're the pilot, you're going on a trip to attend a wedding of a personal friend, and you have a friend who wants to join you for the wedding. Great. You're going there for a common purpose. No problem at all. Your friend pays a pro rider share to enjoy the flight with you. And then that's that. It's different if your friend approaches you and says, hey, I need to go to my friend's wedding. Can you take me there? that doesn't fall under the category of having a common purpose because you as the pilot did not have that goal in mind in the first place. So you have to be a little bit careful. Um, you have to be careful how those uh, flights are approached where you're sharing costs. Cause you can't, as a private pilot, you can't act as a um, you can't hold your shingle out there and say, yes, I can take whoever wants to go to point a, B or C for a cost to wherever they want to go. you so what-
0: Mm-hmm. go,
1: go ahead. ahead I'm sorry I didn't mean to no no, no that's fine. interrupt your train of thought um, so let's say I want to fly my private airplane to a place and uh to catch a football game let's sure. say. and uh, and you somehow find out Steph, that mm-hmm. uh, i'm I'm heading up there in my private airplane and you are going to be the the maid of honor for a uh, a wedding in the same city the same place. is that considered a common?
2: That's considered a common purpose as far okay. as I understand it. You're All both right. going to the same place for a reason. Um, doesn't you know, necessarily have to be the same. It's not that I approached you in the first gotcha. place and said, hey, and then you were like, uh, well, oh, yeah, I, I could go up there and I'll catch a football, a football
1: game. game. <laughs> yeah, I see. That's different. It's it's kind of a kind of it's little a, sh-
0: it's,
2: it's shades it's a of gray. gray yeah. But, you know, you really want to be able to make sure that you can justify the reason for the flight for you as the pilot in the first
1: place if you're a right. private pilot. And Sean, you know, you know, big thumbs up for you, you know, being honest when your passengers tried to, you know, pay you for giving them the sightseeing tour. And you said, no, nope, yeah, and I, I do think that.
2: Almost every pilot, private pilot has had that experience too. It's like, hey, I want to go flying. Like, do you guys want to come with me? Or, you know, they want to go for a sightseeing flight and you want to go fly. So that's, that's common purpose. If you want to go fly and they want to go fly, that's not a big deal. Um, you can have that common purpose. Um But then you still have to pay your pro rata share, which is at least the uh, amount divisible by however many passengers you have, if not more.
4: Yeah, the uh, the problem I see with uh, having people pay to go fly with you is that the whole purpose of building up these hours is to get the experience and ability so that you can be trusted to take a fair-paying passenger. Mm -hmm. If you take fair-paying passengers, in order to become experienced enough to take fair-paying passengers, that defies logic. That doesn't work in my book. So mm-hmm. I, I don't see a problem if uh, uh, if you're qualified to fly with a passenger and they want to share the cost of the flight. Uh, I don't see a problem with that. When you start actually doing it solely for the purpose of making money exactly, so that you can then generate the hours to become a person who – can legally fly passengers around. That's when it becomes a problem for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that's where the line is. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you, Sean, for from Oregon from uh, for sending in that audio feedback. Very very nice. Thank you. Sealview uh, sent uh, sent us some feedback. Hello, APG crew and community. Sealview here. I've been listening to the latest episodes and absolutely enjoyed the show with the old pilots' plane tales. And then he made a suggestion for Captain Nick, perhaps uh, on a future plane Tales. He said, um, "Sophia is a flying telescope on NASA seven on a NASA seven forty seven. I think it would make for an interesting episode." I I've done
4: uh, uh, I would be doing Marcus a disservice yeah. <laughs> if I did this because uh, Marcus of Omega Tau... I think he did three entire installments when he actually flew on uh, the Sophia uh, 747. It's so like wee, over seven hours. we bit longer the than the PT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's <laughs>
2: extra. Right. If you're interested at all in Sophia, I would highly recommend it. It's fantastic. Yeah,
4: absolutely. It is very good. And I would feel like I was treading on his toes, which I wouldn't like to do. Yeah, Omega Tau
1: podcast, Marcus. Yeah. Great, great stuff. Maybe you already listened to a show. But if not, Sylvie, you need to check it out. Uh, he, he goes on, also for your listeners who are very busy with their lives their lives, and want to make it easier to study the material, I found the full re- audio recording for the FAA Pilots Operating Handbook and some other material on LibriVox.org, which are recorded and on public domain. Just search for FAA as author. And so I did that, and I just found a little excerpt of something if you want to hear the quality of these things, which I was very impressed by, and this is a, a the, from the preface of the pilot's knowledge something or other.
3: The pilot's handbook of aeronautical knowledge provides basic knowledge that is
1: the pilot's handbook of basic aeronautical knowledge. That's it.
3: Essential for pilots, this handbook introduces pilots to the broad spectrum of knowledge that will be needed as they progress in their pilot training, except for the code of federal regulations pertinent to civil aviation. Most of the knowledge areas applicable to pilot certification are presented. This handbook is useful to beginning pilots, as well as those pursuing more advanced pilot certificates. Occasionally, the word must, or similar language...
1: Anyway, so you get the idea. Uh, very high-quality recording, at least in this case, the the one that I selected. And uh, they break it down into chapters and everything else. So it's a, a very useful thing, and it's uh, it's all free. It's public domain. So um uh, very good um advice or uh uh what's the word I'm looking for good uh tip for those of you out there who want to uh gain some aeronautical knowledge and perhaps are driving or doing something that where they can't read the stuff but they can listen like listen to podcasts so uh we'll put a link to uh the link that he left us in his feedback on the show notes um I do want to ask Dr. Steph and Captain Dana about some GA aircraft that take off while being highly overweight and usually end up in a crash. My almost 10 hours of experience tell me that's one of the worst decisions a pilot can do. And he goes on to say, the chain of events as seen by me goes as such. First, the aircraft can barely climb out of the ground effect and be at the stall limit. Second, engine is run at full power. Third, since altitude is really hard to gain, Training it for turns might not be an option, plus it can be even more difficult to control. Fourth, obstacles are extremely hard to clear. And fifth, the engine will overheat inevitably, and if there is no place to land, they're out of luck. I would appreciate your input and comments on general aviation aircraft uh, leaving overweight? No, landing overweight. Departing. Maybe. Departing. Oh, I see. Okay. Taking off overweight. Okay. Thanks, as always, tailwinds unlimited visibility, an autopilot that never lets you down when you need it, mm. endless IPAs for the crew, and rivers of bourbon for Dana. Ciao. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, so Dana's not with us today, but uh, Dr. Steph, perhaps you can shed some light on, on his question. Yeah,
2: don't, don't do it. Um, it <laughs> don't doesn't do end it. well. <laughs> I mean, you for any aircraft you're flying, you need to know the weight and balance data. And if you're outside of those data, then it is not safe for you to go flying. It's as simple as that because all of the things that you listed could potentially happen if you're trying to take off with an overweight or out of balance aircraft.
1: So. And same thing goes for the kind of airplanes that Nick and I fly as well. Mm-hmm. You definitely it's don't want to...
2: All airplanes. Yeah,
1: all airplanes.
4: Yes, I think the first aircraft crash I saw was a a rather underpowered, uh, very, very basic trainer with an extremely large passenger and uh, instructor who were going off for a uh, trial flight. And uh, they took off on a wind that was slightly downwind on a slightly uphill runway. And uh, when they got to the end of the runway, they didn't have enough height or speed to clear the trees and stall into the trees at the end. So... So exactly the situation uh, you're describing there, uh, Sylvia. Ran out of ideas
1: and airspeed, right? Yep. Yeah. Or airspeed and not ideas. not a
2: good place, tidy to, to be. Right?
1: No. No. All right. Well, Silvia, thanks again for the tips and um, great question. Nick Nack Jack, he sent us some audio feedback. Uh, we played the second part or the second item of audio feedback on the last episode because it pertained to the. Southwest Southwest 1380 uh, accident, and I uh, told you we would play the first part of his audio in this episode. So here we go. Take it away.
9: Hey, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, uh, Captain Dana, and Nick. Uh, Captain Nick, uh, this is Nicknack Jack here, and I am flying the Benliner across the Pacific, somewhere over the South Pacific, uh, in route from Melbourne to uh, San Francisco, flying the Dash 8. Uh, I actually had a crash 8 the other day. Um, it was very unfortunate coming into Singapore and the airplane just wouldn't climb. Uh, it was a problem. So the safety statistics of Travel World Airlines have gone down, unfortunately. Uh, very sad to report that. Um, but I'm enjoying the Binliner. Uh, and I thought I'd check in. I've been really behind on podcasts, so I'm trying to catch up. But uh, still enjoy the show. Hopefully you're amused by my uh, tales and not too distracted by the cat in the background. So keep up the good show. Uh, hope to hear from you guys uh, as you continue to produce episodes and keep me entertained on these long Trans-Pacific flights. And uh, till next time, uh, keep flying. Keep the blue side up. Bye.
1: Somehow, knick Jack miraculously survived that Dash 8 crash, 787 yeah, 7, Dash 8.
4: The, the aircraft, because he yeah. was flying it again five minutes later. <laughs> the
1: the joys of
2: simulator flying, right?
4: <laughs> Do over.
1: Yeah. New day, new airplane. Yep.
4: Press the reset button. <laughs> I love it.
1: Good uh, stuff. Yeah, good stuff.
4: I'm just curious to know what kind of engines he's got in his bin liner. <laughs> it
1: must not be the... Rolls Royce, right?
4: I no, perhaps don't. Well, I don't know. He he crashed so it. No, it well, was. <laughs> yeah. maybe it was.
0: Maybe it was.
1: Anyway, uh, thanks again, Knickknack Jack. Uh, Steve sent in Steve Horn, the uh, guy that does those wonderful "How I Got Here" uh, installments. Sent in this, and <laughs> he sent a link to uh, some video. A uh, flight instructor was was flying along with a student and um, a surprise occurred. And uh, Steve, his email to us says, some poo came out. <laughs>
0: was... Yes,
2: I, I understand the, the
1: sentiment, the emotion.
4: Thank you for sharing that with us, Steve, uh, not. Anyway. I'm, I'm waiting for Dr. Steph to explain what physiological uh, <laughs> effect occurred there.
2: It's probably related to the uh, fight or flight uh, response.
4: If you
1: watch this video, trust me, you'll You'll understand understand why
0: (laughs) Uh,
1: the description of the video, heart stopping footage has emerged showing the moment a flight instructor narrowly avoids a mid air collision with a private jet west of Eastbourne, UK footage captured on March 7th shows the small plane veering to the right in order to avoid the oncoming jet, which appeared out of nowhere. And uh, I was reading somewhere else and I don't recall where I think it was one of our community members actually uh, said that uh, they, they did some research on this. And I guess the uh, people flying the private jet never, ever saw this trainer aircraft. And uh, it was it was close. You really should watch, uh, as most people would say, not a near miss, but a near hit.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I did a board of inquiry, so I got a lot of technical assistance from the guys at Farnborough. Um, when we were coming up with our findings which uh, involved a mid-air collision. And, uh, of course, if you're actually going to collide with someone, they have to be on a constant bearing, so they are relatively stationary compared uh, in your windshield um, because if they start moving across your windshield, they're either going to go to one side of you or another, perhaps above or perhaps below. So they'd be absolutely stationary. And uh, your eyes aren't really designed to pick up things that are stationary where we're hunters basically and we very easily pick up things that move relative to us uh, we zero in on those very easily um, so it's quite hard to see an aircraft that is on a collision path with you because it won't have any relative movement to you until it physically starts to blossom grow in size and that is usually extremely late uh in the um, the scheme of things. So when it does start to grow fast, you have to react very quickly. Um And it looks like this bloke did a good job. Uh, I suspect that the other aircraft was sitting there with uh, probably a newspaper stuck in the windshield. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> I don't know. There was a glare
2: coming not. from the sun, right?
7: Yes.
1: It yeah. Uh, and you'll see in this video how, so you know, it just, yes.
2: With your stratics adsb
1: yeah you can have maybe. that
2: traffic information
1: yeah yeah and it does yeah. it does
2: give you an alert an auditory alert on your uh, oh. if you have it set up that way on your four flight it will say traffic oh, oh yeah. and i did think of the one thing that i was going to say about about it earlier just now um and i've seen this with other adsb um receivers as well that sometimes it identifies your own aircraft and tries to tell you that you all of a sudden have another aircraft in conflict oh. right at your exact same altitude and going the exact same direction at the same speed, oh. but it's easy to identify that as such because it usually, at least in the instances I've seen it, it happens um, when there's clearly not going to be any other traffic right at that spot, like right after you've taken off and it suddenly identifies your signal. Uh, um, for whatever reason, it can recognize both, and I've seen that with other receivers as well. So it's not unique to this one, but it was an interesting thing to note. It gets your attention a little bit because it goes I was traffic, to say. traffic. Yes.
1: <laughs> you know, even in uh, the systems that we use the TCAS systems occasionally you know they're supposed to suppress returns or alerts for aircraft that are on the ground but occasionally you'll get a spurious you know traffic call out or whatever and you kind of what where you know it gets your attention uh it's you know the software does a pretty good job of eliminating those kind of nuisance warnings but occasionally it does occur all right Usually it's when you're coming in for a landing and somebody on the ground is anyway, about to take off or whatever.
2: Still yeah. still helpful for those situations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when you watch this video, you'll see that you know, even when you're staring and you know exactly where to be looking for this, because I watched it several times, uh, you don't see it until the very last minute. And so this guy's uh, very, very quick uh, reaction saved probably a lot of lives. Yeah, the first I time just, I watched
2: it, I, was, I had my attention divided a little bit and I was like, oh, let's see what this is. And I missed it completely until... Like he had already maneuvered out of the way and I never saw the other aircraft. So it's, it gets your attention. It gets yeah, your when, you,
4: when you're looking out into a clear uh, area of sky, it's uh, very hard to keep your eyes focused at infinity, which is where they need to be focused to see. Your fo- eyes will naturally start focusing in uh, because they've got nothing to actually focus on until you find yourself staring at a scratch on the canopy. And at that point, you've really got to force yourself to look back out, pick a, a Something a cloud at the distance or an object on the ground that's some distance away, look at that for a second and then bring your eyes up to the range of bearing where you expect to see it, so that your eyes are going to actually focus on him
1: and your comment earlier, Nick, about um, you know if if an object is you're on basically a bearing to intersect with the other object you know potentially hit the other object is something that is a, a danger when you're not trying to get close to another object but Conversely, when you're learning how to fly in formation and you're doing turning rejoins, that's exactly what we're teaching our students to do. You know, like if you, if that object stays in the same relative position, but, you know, grows a little bit larger as you get closer, then you're on the right line during this turning rejoin to uh, to have a nice rejoin. That's exactly
4: right. Same principle as when you're uh, working out where your landing point will be on a runway. So uh, the runway, the point of the runway that isn't moving relative to you is where you're Impact point is going to be uh, if the if that starts rising up or going down in the uh, canopy, then you're either going to over or undershoot it. So same principle applies.
1: Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you, uh, Steve, for sending that in. Sorry about the physiological incident.
2: <laughs> a little unfortunate. And yeah, maybe a little unfortunate, but we can we can
4: understand. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we know who to send the bill to, do we? <laughs>
1: Brian sent us in some questions uh, Pasadena Brian who is also the associate producer of the wonderful Airplane Geeks podcast
4: and and, helped me out on my plane tail the other day
1: all right yes yeah, right I, I thought I recognized that voice well you go see if you recognize this one here we go
4: hi Captain Jeff
3: and crew this is Pasadena Brian and I have some feedback and a question for you Captain Nick Sorry we couldn't catch up at Heathrow when I was in town. Hope all worked out with you and your physical. Just wondering, can you talk a little bit about your airline's physical requirements or how the annuals work?
1: I thought I'd just stop it right there. We'll take each question as it comes.
4: Uh, well, I've, I just need a standard CAA Class 1 medical, uh, Brian. So that's that's the uh, company's requirement. When you first join, you have to pass a company medical in as well. but uh, I've never ever seen a published standard. So I think that's done on a case-by-case basis. I was pretty fit when I joined the airline, but I'm a bit older now. Um, so the company is not actually interested. They're willing to pick up the bills for anything extra you need to do. So so if you need an extra test or something in order to pass your class one medical, they're willing to pay for that. But uh, it's up to you to deal with your um, aeromedical advisor, Pass the uh, test, and if you do have some additional medical problem that might require some other expert advice, then you have to go across and find an expert, get them to give an opinion that sent at the CAA. They decide whether they will accept it or not. And assuming they do, then uh, that all that's fine imbued. and And um, the basic requirements, well, they're they're probably too big to list. I just present my pink and hairy body to uh, my examiner, and he just prods and pokes it. Uh, I do undergo um, regular hearing tests, sight tests, uh, ECGs, um, blood tests, and a few other bits and bobs uh, to get through just a standard medical, and it was annual, and now I'm uh, over 60. It is now um, twice yearly, so every six months. That's the basis. So. Uh, I think you, there's an awful lot of information on uh, the CA website. If you're interested, I'm sure Dr. Steph knows a bit more. So you you only have to go
1: annually until you reach sixty.
4: Yes, that's right. Huh? It used to be uh, uh, I think it's sixty. Pretty sure it's sixty. Yeah, for us, it's you,
1: um, basically when you're when you have a type rating, um, I think, or or maybe it's when you turn when you become a captain or a certain age. Class too.
2: Class One medical. Class you need one. to go every six months. Yeah, six, class Class yeah, 2 medical is every year and yeah, class 3 is every
1: 5. So, so when I was a when I was a first officer it was only one once a year and you go and get your class 1 but it would um it would it would revert to or notch down to the class 2 after the 6 month point. But that was all that was required as a second in command um or or maybe it was because there was no type rating because I think uh, be, we we started requiring type ratings for both pilot-in-command and second-in-command at ACME uh, several years back. So now I think uh, it's every six months for everybody now.
4: You can be uh, sitting in the right-hand seat without a type rating? Uh, Yes. You used to be able to. Right. and I don't know if
1: that was a change by the FAA or if it was a company internal change. Uh, But yeah, I, I didn't have a type rating until I checked out as captain. Okay. Uh,
2: It's not
1: possible anymore. Isn't it? Okay. Uh, Well, Well, yeah. Yeah. Especially after the the Colgan uh, (laughs) thing. Yeah. Okay.
4: Yeah. Yeah, uh, Well, we uh, went under the UK rules. I think we were annual up to 50 and then or 55 and then six monthly when we went to EASA because we had to combine with so many other countries and some of whom had extremely relaxed rules. They Sort of picked a midway path, so it was and it's now annual till 60 and then six monthly. That's the answer, oh. but we've always required a type rating for both of our pilots or all the pilots on there.
1: And it really was just um, uh, what's the word? Uh, I can tell I got up really early this morning because of my vocabulary is lacking, it was just um, uh, an extra little bit that you'd have to do to get the type rating when you went to your next simulator check ride uh, as a second in command to get the type rating um, a, a, par- a part oral examination and uh, some other items in the uh, in the simulator that you had to accomplish which i can't remember right offhand but it was like a it didn't take long it was pretty much everything you were going to do anyway and uh, so the company decided we might as well have everybody uh, in the cockpit with a with a type rating So, but it's, but it's a different, it wasn't like a full pilot and command type rating. It's kind of hard to, it's like a, a special category of type ratings. But again, that was all before this latest requirement that now everybody has to have a type rating to get hired by a part 121 carrier. So um, I guess it's kind of a moot point. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: All right. uh, Moving on. Brian has a question for somebody else. Let's see who it is.
3: Captain Nick as sad as I was not being able to see you. I was able to see Dr. Steph. So Dr. Steph, it was great seeing you at the United Club at Heathrow. Sorry we couldn't meet in Hamburg, but oh well, you were probably tired from running the marathon anyway. But really, thank you so much for walking through the terminal, all those miles to get from one terminal to the other. Really appreciate spending time with you. Captain Jeff, on my flight back from Heathrow, I was trying to get caught up on your never-ending podcast, and several times during the flight, I laughed out loud. I had my earbuds in and no one could tell I was listening to a podcast. So there I was, laughing hysterically from time to time at the show and everyone thought I was crazy. Oh well, it happens.
1: You are, Brian, you are crazy.
3: Tony, Dana, or whatever (laughs) your name is. I guess now it's Captain Dana. Congratulations on moving to the left seat. Here's a question for you. With the upcoming retirement of the Mad Dog, why did you choose to move to the left seat versus some other aircraft? Was it even an option for you to move to another aircraft? If it was an option for you to move to another aircraft, which would it be? Or if it wasn't an option for you, when the Mad Dog is finally retired, what aircraft would you like to move over to? And will you move over as a captain, now that you're a captain, or will you have to go back to being a first officer? Just wondering,
1: Uh, Dana, uh, can you answer that question for Dana? Oh, that's right. He's not with us. Uh, let's see. Let's let Brian finish.
3: Hope all's well with everyone. Keep up the great shows and look forward to listening to future episodes of airline pilot guy. This is Pasadena. Brian fly safely.
1: Thank you, Pasadena. Brian. Uh, I guess it wasn't a question for everyone. Uh, but, uh, and unfortunately, the question for Dana will not be answered in this episode, but uh, perhaps next time Dana will be with us and uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and throw this back into the, into the uh, next episode feedback folder. And then I'll just play that last part for Dana, because those are good questions, Pasadena, Brian. And I think I could answer them, but it wouldn't be right from me because you specifically asked Dana. So um, yeah. So always good to hear from you. And again, Brian Coleman, Pasadena Brian, we know him over here at the APG. He's the associate producer at the Airplane Geeks. That's airplanegeeks.com. Stephen and John both sent us feedback regarding this incident. And this is an interesting one. Perhaps I should play This. Bad girls.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. So uh Steven writes, uh hey y'all, not sure if anyone else saw this, but another great United Airlines story. Okay, it's a regional airline for United, but still a good story. Thanks, Stephen. And again, uh John sent this as well. United Airlines is investigating claims that a flight attendant on one of its planes, one of its regional affiliates, actually was belliger- belligerently drunk or stoned during a flight from Denver, Colorado, to Williston, North Dakota on Thursday. I kind of highlighted stoned and Denver in our show notes. <laughs> because uh, isn't it uh, Colorado, one of the states that uh, has legalized Indeed, the use of uh, a Mira- Now, I'm not saying that this is what happened in this case, but if you look at the picture.
2: <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange coincidence in yeah. any case.
1: So in a statement at Newsweek, the airline said it was aware of the incident. The flight in question was a trans state airlines flight. Yay for mentioning that. Whoever uh, Newsweek, I think, did this. Yeah. As a gesture of goodwill, we have compensated all customers aboard the flight. We apologize for any inconvenience or distress this may have caused. United said in a statement to Newsweek, the the safety of our customers and crew aboard all United and trans states flights is a top priority. Uh, Well, what happened here? Well. At least one passenger tweeted to United about the incident. According to passenger Erica Gorman, the attendant appeared either drunk or stoned and made what was supposed to be a routine flight terrifying. Gorman said she spoke to the pilot and told him that they had an out of control flight attendant. At one point, the flight attendant allegedly told passengers quote, If your seatbelt isn't tight, you effed up. <laughs> Police officers and an ambulance were waiting when the plane landed at its destination, according to Gorman. The passenger also tweeted images of the suspected flight attendant, which have since been deleted. United Airlines quickly responded to the passenger and said it was looking into the disturbing claims. And uh, there was some more information there as well. Um, Yeah, uh, I wonder how she says she notified the passenger notified the pilot. I wonder how she did that. Kind of curious. (laughs) Maybe after they landed? No, it sounds like they already had an idea. that Maybe when they got on the plane in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Before. I hope (laughs) not. There was some picture, or maybe it was a video. I think it must have been a picture, or maybe it was a picture of a video, uh, where the uh, flight attendant in uh, the allegedly uh, drunk-slash-stoned flight attendant was getting into one of the passengers' faces. I mean, literally, like... Inches away and screaming at him about something, and uh, they all kind of suspected that something wasn't quite right.
4: What medical uh, conditions can you have, Steph, that uh, can bring on these kind of symptoms? Mm,
2: well, intoxication. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, is one.
2: You could also one
4: might not be self-induced.
2: Yeah, I, There there's probably a lot actually. Um, you know, we certainly talk about um hypoxia sometimes is causing these types of uh, problems. Uh, which one are you thinking of in particular? I'm not sure.
4: Oh, I don't know. I think there might be might have been something with blood sugars that Yeah, uh, blood sugars
2: could cause it. I mean, like I said there's there's probably a whole list of things that could um could cause this, but certainly the most most common are um shall we say non uh, intrinsic to the body um
4: okay. Fair causes. Enough.
1: I'd say psychosis, maybe. Psychosis.
2: No. So I, like I said, there, there's, there's certainly, you could put them under the category of psychological disturbances. You could put it under the category of metabolic disturbances. So anything that's, um, uh, upsetting blood, blood chemistry, brain chemistry. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of reasons, but certainly you would think that if the, uh, flight attendant or any employee who showed up to work acting in this manner might have been, um, Stopped from performing their duties before it got to this point, I would think. So, I'm not sure how she managed to be on the flight in the first place.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess in a situation when you have a regional a jet that's you know 50 seats or fewer here in the U.S., uh, when only one flight attendant is required, you, you can almost see the situation where perhaps the pilots never really get a chance to uh, interact. With the flight, yeah. although they would have had to have done some kind of a face to face briefing, but perhaps she didn't act strangely when that occurred, and perhaps that it went undetected until maybe they were on their way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean,
4: I wonder if we'll find out any more.
1: Probably not. That yeah. would be my guess.
2: <laughs> well, either way, no matter what the cause, sounds like she got some medical attention and yeah. hopefully has recovered from whatever condition, whether. Uh, biological or otherwise was causing her unusual behavior.
4: Right.
1: Paul, our good friend, uh, Paul at uh, Newark Liberty International Airport, uh, was also a uh, mechanic, an AMP mechanic. Um, and we were talking about the engine um, examinations, uh, inspections of the uh, CFM 56. And as a addition to his audio feedback regarding that, he sent in a couple of photos uh, of one of their CFM 56 post inspections where you can see the dovetail and the dovetail slot where the blades install and the primary focus of the failure of the fan blade on Southwest 1380. And so uh, we'll put those in the show notes if you're curious. Great photos of the fan section of the uh, uh, CFM 56 and a nice close up of the. Uh, the ring where those uh, fan blades are inserted into that dovetail slot
4: it's an interesting one because they look like there's not a very tight fit uh, for those blades which is in fact the case because when these blades are cold there's a bit of breeze blowing through the engine and the fan is gently rotating the blades tinkle as they uh, move slightly uh, and the weight uh, moves them in that dovetail joint Uh, And that's, of course, uh, there on purpose because as the blades heat up when the engine is running, then they tighten into their slots and um, they're fine. Uh, The bird strike I had quite early on in my career during uh, my initial base training, um, we got a lot of vibration from the fan and um, we shut the engine down as a precaution when we landed because uh, all of us, there were about like, 10 or 15 pilots on board, all doing their base training. We well, all we'll piled out to have a look at this engine. And uh, we, the engineers were already out there uh, looking in the front. We could see the remains of this uh, seagull that had uh, been swallowed down the engine. Uh, and the engineers were out there with a soft hammer. And uh, what had happened was as the bird struck the fan blades, it hadn't done a lot of damage to the uh, fan blades But it had um, uh, forced the blade and uh, about five of the blades into a position where they were uh, twisted slightly and locked um, rather than being uh, loose and free to move about, which is what had created the out of balance and the vibration uh, of the engine, which led us to shut it down. We have vibration indicators on the engine that particularly on the fran that we pay close attention to that tell us if there's a problem and they were out there tapping the blades with this soft hammer to free them up so that they move properly in their joints and then they because there was no uh, effectively no damage done when they cleaned and wiped them off and inspected them uh, the aircraft went back to service
1: very interesting yeah i love that uh, the sound that uh, the the fans make when the breeze is blowing through them and the
4: oh it's like having a wind chime isn't it mm-hmm I'd like to have one in my back garden. I think when, when I retire. Just to... Paul, if you see one, well, <laughs> you can pinch for me, right? Can you?
2: The whole assembly.
4: Yeah, just a big front fan. Yeah. Big just front gently fan. Going. Yeah, on a pole in my garden, it can sit and go around and tinkle. That'd be nice. And you said that they had a some kind of a hammer that they were. Yeah, they had a soft hammer, you know, a mallet with a with a soft plastic head rather than a metal.
6: Excellent.
1: Yeah, I'm sure to be in trouble with YouTube.
6: For
4: that. <laughs> well, luckily it wasn't silver. they would be yes. expensive. The engineers keep stealing them. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: what a strange song that is. Yeah. I love it though. That's yeah, a great song. It. And once you hear it, then you'll be humming it for the rest of the evening. Sorry. Yeah. Thanks. You're welcome. Glad that
2: that's in my head now.
1: <laughs> I think now would be a good time for this week's installment of The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, and this is kind of a part two. This is Another of Our Aircraft is Missing.
4: The Old Pilot's Plane tails. Another of our aircraft is missing. I've often wondered why it's so easy to start up an aircraft. It seems that the more expensive or potentially dangerous an aircraft is, the easier it is to get it going without a key, security code, or some other way to ensure that the person about to fire it up is authorised to do so. It's fair to say that GA aircraft uh, that sit around small airfields without lots of security are often harder to pinch. There are usually door locks, and magnetos are often turned on with an ignition key, but even those are pretty flimsy, but at least they're a deterrent. How about military aircraft? Surely those have some kind of prevention device. Well, not so's you'd notice. Military bases are pretty hard to get into, and there tend to be lots of armed guards around. But the aircraft themselves? Well... All you need to have is a little know-how, and you could be off on the ultimate joyride. So why hasn't it been done, you ask? Well, actually, it has. Let me take you back to 1969 and the sacred pages of Hansard, the document that contains what is referred to as the substantially verbatim account of every speech made in the Houses of Parliament since 1909. On this particular day, Mr Eldon
6: Griffiths of Berry St Edmunds stated that Sometime during the morning of Friday the 23rd of May, Sergeant Paul Mayer of the United States Air Force, who was stationed at Mildenhall in my constituency, was found staggering along the A11 road the police, in accordance with the Visiting Forces Act, returned this young American to his base, where a security guard put him to bed to sleep it off. Sergeant Mayer was a man with problems. Very recently married
4: and now separated from his wife by thousands of miles, he was becoming increasingly upset because his distressed wife, desperately wanted him to come home, as she was being sued by her ex-husband. In an alcoholic haze, Mayer thought he had found the perfect way to get home. He broke into the room of a captain, stole the keys to his truck, and then phoned ahead, calling himself Captain Epstein, and demanded that a C-130 was fueled up for a flight to the USA. The ground crew didn't question their supposedly superior officer, even though he smelled of drink and was alone, when he climbed into the C-130 and started it up and taxied onto the runway. Mayer had some flight training on small aircraft, but had never handled anything as big as a Hercules. But despite his lack of sobriety, he got airborne and flew south. The RAF and Civil Air Traffic Controllers, now alert to the unauthorised flight, tracked him as he skirted Heathrow and set off across the channel. The USAF scrambled an F-100 to intercept the stolen aircraft. On board, Mayer managed to use the HF radio to set up a phone patch to his wife, Jane, in the States. Hi honey, he started. Guess what? I've got a bird in the sky and I'm coming home. He spoke to her for some time until, after being airborne for around two hours, he said, leave me alone for five minutes, I've got trouble. He was midway between Bournemouth and Cherbourg when he impacted the waters of the English Channel and died. Neither the wreckage nor the body of Sergeant Mayer were ever recovered. In an interview, his wife said that when he told me he was in trouble, I surmised the trouble must have been jets that were sent up to take him down. I'm sure I've not been told the whole truth. The official US Air Force report into the accident mentions that an F-100 jet fighter was scrambled from RAF Lakenheath shortly after Mayer took off in an effort to assist him along with a C-130 from RAF Mildenhall. They were both apparently unsuccessful in establishing visual or radio contact with him. Back in the House of Commons, Mr Griffiths goes on to describe another
6: USAF aircraft that was borrowed by a mechanic. This is not the first such incident. In June 1958, another United States mechanic took off in a B-45 bomber from Alcombbury Base in Huntingdon, and this aircraft crashed onto the London Edinburgh Railway line. Indeed Mr Griffiths was quite correct. In June
4: 1958, a mechanic, Airman 2nd Class Vernon L Morgan, aged 21, absconded with a North American B-45A tornado from the USAF base in Cambridgeshire. The four-engined B-45 was the USAF's first operational jet bomber and an important part of the United States nuclear deterrent. The 55 nuclear-capable tornadoes arrived in the United Kingdom in 1952, but despite technical problems, These were the Tactical Air Command's first-line deterrent in Europe. I haven't been able to find out exactly how Vernon got access to the aircraft, but a newspaper article said that he took off into the night sky on a Friday around midnight. The B-45 normally required a crew of four to operate it, so perhaps not unexpectedly, particularly since he wasn't a trained pilot, Vernon's moment of glory ended when he died in a flaming crash only three minutes later, plunging his aircraft into the main London-to-Edinburgh railway line only a few minutes before an express train was due. Mr Griffiths obviously had the bit between his teeth as he continued to cite more cases of aircraft theft.
6: There have been other occasions in the United States since then, One does not have to be a devotee of Dr. Strangelove to recognise that a huge aircraft carrying thousands of gallons of high-octane petrol, not to mention the possibility of even more deadly items, can be a lethal weapon in the hands of an untrained and possibly unstable man.
4: I'm not sure to which other events Mr. Griffiths is referring, but the history books tell us of many. Indeed, late one night in 1986, another 21-year-old mechanic, Lance Corporal Howard Foote Jr., climbed into an A4M Skyhawk fighter-bomber and took off from an unlit runway at the Marine Corps Air Station El Tolo in California. The young man had always dreamed of flying a military jet and was an accomplished glider pilot, having set a world altitude record as a teenager, but after suffering an embolism in his elbow due to the high altitude, he failed his medical as a marine pilot. Having got airborne, Foot flew out over the sea towards St Clement Island, apparently flying loops and rolls, before returning after 45 minutes to try and land back at the airbase. By this time, the airfield lighting had been put on, and every runway was well lit since his theft had been discovered. On the fifth attempt, he managed to touch down safely and bring the Skyhawk to a stop, before being very promptly arrested. Not only was his flight extremely reckless, he had chosen an unserviceable aircraft to fly that night. The aircraft's ailerons were out of alignment, and the nose wheel steering was faulty. The Lance Corporal was charged with an impressive array of offences and faced up to nine years of hard labour, forfeiture of all pay, demotion, and a dishonourable discharge. However, Luckily for Foot, the actual penalty imposed on him by the court-martial was remarkably light. Just four and a half months already served in the brig and an other-than-honourable discharge from the Marine Corps. As it turns out, helicopters are also fair game for the odd jolly. In 1973, a young American soldier was trying hard to accomplish the particular set of skills needed to fly a machine that gets airborne by beating the air into submission rather than using aerodynamics. Sadly, he failed or was washed out in the common vernacular of the country during the instrument phase of flying. He was subsequently assigned to Fort Meade, but Private First Class Preston harboured growing resentment at being failed, since he felt he was a great pilot. Finally, a few months later, around midnight, Preston executed his plan and stole a US Army Bell UH UH-1 Iroquois Huey helicopter from Tipton Army Airfield at Fort Meade. After hovering over the houses on the base for a while, he set course across Anne Arundel County at low level. Finding a caravan park, he apparently landed his Huey there, climbed out and ran around it several times before setting off again. In Dorsey, Maryland, he buzzed cars and knocked the antenna off a police car. By now, a couple of state police helicopters were following him as he flew over Baltimore, Washington Airport before heading off down the similarly named Parkway at 50 feet with no lights on. He then made his way down the South Capitol Street Bridge before turning west and heading to the White House. He descended over the South Lawn for a while before landing taking off again and setting course for the Washington Monument, where he turned his lights back on and hovered at head height for a while, before heading back to the White House. A trooper in one of the following helicopters described him as one hell of a pilot, calling the hour-long chase a modern-day dogfight. Arriving at the White House for a second time, Preston hovered over the lawn, but this time the Executive Protection Service opened fire with shotguns, and the Huey bounced roughly to a halt, whilst the state police helicopters blocked his path to the building. Ashamed to have done such a dodgy landing, when he just wanted to show everyone how good he was. Preston was wounded in the legs, and then wrestled to the ground by the Secret Service. He pleaded guilty to wrongful appropriation and breach of the peace and was given one year plus a fine of $2,400. Since he had already been in custody for six months, all he ended up doing was two months hard labour before being given a general discharge by the army for unsuitability. Really? There are other stories, like the F-86 Sabre mechanic that turned a high-speed taxi test into a flight around the airbase, and the RAF Wing Commander engineer who got airborne in a Lightning. For that story, you might want to listen to the tale called Taffy Holden's Lightning. Of course, pinching aircraft hasn't been the sole preserve of military mechanics. As recently as 2003, an airliner was stolen. A Boeing 727-200 series, registration November 844 alpha alpha should you ever spot it, was sitting quite innocently at Cuatro de Fevereiro Airport in Luanda. This former American Airlines aircraft had been with that legacy airline for 25 years before being sold to a Miami-based lease company, Aerospace Sales and Leasing. They had leased it on to TAAG Angola Airlines, but it had been grounded and sat idle at Luanda for over a year, accruing more than $4 million in backdated airport fees. The FBI, who are a bit interested in this aircraft's whereabouts, Describe it as being of unpainted silver with a stripe of blue, white and red down the fuselage. I wonder where that comes from. It was empty of passenger seats and fitted out with tanks to carry diesel fuel. Just before sunset on the 25th of May, two men boarded the aircraft. One was an American pilot, Ben Padilla and the other was a hired mechanic from the Congo, John Mutantu. Neither men were certified to fly the 727, which normally needs a crew of three, but they had both been working with an Angolan mechanic to get the aircraft ready for flight. The machine started up and began taxiing out without clearance or talking to the tower. It manoeuvred erratically before entering the runway. The tyre controllers tried to call it, but there was no response. It took off and departed into the setting sun and headed out towards the Atlantic Ocean. Neither the aircraft nor the men have ever been found. Reports found in the United States diplomatic cables leak indicate that the United States searched for the aircraft in multiple countries after the event. A regional security officer looked for it in Sri Lanka without result. A ground search was also conducted by diplomats stationed in Nigeria at multiple airports without finding it. Padilla's sister was reported to think that he crashed somewhere in Africa or was being held against his will. However, An extensive article which included considerable research was published in the Air and Space magazine but was unable to draw any firm conclusions on the whereabouts or the fate of the aircraft or those who stopped it. Perhaps we can conclude that crime doesn't pay. Music by bensounds.com
1: wow lots of uh pinched as you say airplanes especially the military
4: <laughs> yeah I know I, I guess all the protection on a military base is at the perimeter they don't expect one of their own to take it upon themselves to steal an airplane an inside That's, job um, yeah I know exactly but uh well uh, that um tornado uh the b-45 was a four engine jet for heaven's sake and this guy I I I didn't I wish I could have found out more about that one but uh the guy was obviously had no training as a pilot and uh, thought it would be great fun on a late Friday night to get it airborne and he didn't last very long sadly but I mean was remar- some <laughs> remarkable things I mean kind of, yeah I
1: mean how do you how do you get all those engines started I mean I even thought the same thing of that c130 you know I think I, I, if I <laughs> sat myself in a, a C130 cockpit. I don't I'm not sure I'd be able to figure out how to get the engines running.
4: No, no, I, I expect most of these guys were probably qualified to do ground runs and things uh-huh. and they probably had a basic understanding of it or perhaps even doing taxi tests or something, but uh Yeah. I don't know. It's uh it, I still I I shouldn't chuckle. There were a couple of tragic circumstances uh the way those some of those flights ended. But uh I, the particularly the guy that pinched the Huey <laughs> at the white house i thought that
6: was brilliant
4: yeah um president Nixon uh, i think was the uh, incumbent president wasn't actually in the White house that night there so no harm done wow
6: good story imagine that
2: happening today though like just the media coverage would be outstanding <laughs> oh,
6: would. Mm-hmm. absolutely
1: yep yeah different days back then hmm all right. Uh, thank you again, uh, Captain Nick, old pilot. Oh, I love that. For uh, that was good. Thanks. For the great uh, plane tales, always a highlight of the show. All right. Uh, Paul and Dave uh, both wrote in with weight and balance-related questions. We'll start with uh, Paul, who sent us some audio feedback.
7: Hello, Captains Jeff, Nick, and Dana, along with the lovely Steph. This is Paul from San Diego. Uh, I had a, had a question. Um, I fly pretty regularly, and these days most of the flights are pretty full. And I do remember, though, that on some of the more sparsely populated flights that the, the captain or the, the plane would not allow people to reseat themselves. Um, In particular, uh, let's say a couple rows were empty or a row was empty. Um, Meanwhile, based on the reservation you booked, you're stuck with three people uh, in a row. And the reason that was always given was due to weight and balance considerations. But these days, people have the ability to kind of rebook their seat at will. And, And I wonder if that's, Still a consideration. Uh, is it ever the case that somebody's not allowed to move seats, or let's say, you know, in a in a crazy world, everybody picked the seats on the left side of the plane, would the seat selection or the gate uh, crew not allow those people to keep those seats and try to evenly distribute the passengers? Um, how how do you manage that? How do you from a uh, flight safety perspective: Decide whether or not people need to reseat themselves in order for you know proper weight distribution. Um, and and as a secondary question related to weights and balances, when luggage is being loaded on the plane, uh, I assume that when the luggage goes in the, the the cargo hold, that there is some kind of baffling system to keep the luggage from shifting around. But I don't know. I haven't actually had the opportunity to look inside of uh, the cargo portion as as we see the uh, ground crew loading the bags on the planes. Um, anyways, uh, hope that's uh, reasonably clear. Keep up the great work. Uh, love the show and uh, blue skies and fair winds.
1: That's a baffling question. Bam. Um, I'll answer that last part first because... I'm still thinking about it, Uh, the baffling. And I guess it depends on the airplane. The airplane that I fly, then Dana fly, um, does not have um, the kind of uh, system that uh, the airplane that Nick flies, which has a standard, what do you call those, containers. Um, They have a certain name. Uh, Package containers. Cargo? No, they are like UIDs or something like that. The big metal containers. What was it again,
4: Nick? It's
1: something at ULD? ULD, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so Which stands for Universal uh, Loading Device. ULD. Load, you know? <laughs> <You laughs> Give me a
0: moment moment when I Google it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, while I while I vamp for you, you can look it up. But uh, so yeah, the, the Mad Dog Unit Load Device. Ah, yes, of course. Uh,
4: there you go. Obviously. Anyone would know uh, that.
1: Obviously. <laughs> but uh, I think we've had trouble with that. <laughs> with that acronym before on the show. I think so. Uh, you think we'd learn. But you'd think. No, no, no way. No, you'd be wrong. Yeah. Uh, basically, every airplane that I've flown except the um, L-1011, uh, every airliner, which means that only the 727 and Mad Dog for me, but uh, they they don't have um, baffles and uh, the luggage is loose in the, uh, in the cargo compartments. Now, on the Mad Dog, we have three doors. And six bins. So basically, basically each door. If you you know look to the left, that's one bin. You know, in quotation marks. And if you look to the right of the door, that's the other bin. But it's all one big space. And uh, same thing with the mid and the forward cargo compartment. And uh, normally, what you do most of the luggage on a Mad Dog is placed in the aft bin. The last cargo is compartment. That,
4: is that word "placed" a euphemism for something. What was that? The word "placed" a
6: euphemism for something. Uh, no, I don't think so.
4: No, not thrown,
1: chucked. Oh, oh placed. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, you know, at that point when they're loading it, there's not a lot of chucking going on there. <laughs> um, I was watching uh, today. Uh, we were loading in at Bradley International. And the guy was pulling off one of these bags from the baggage cart to put onto the belt loader. And it was obvious that he wasn't anticipating that this bag was going to be so heavy because as soon as it, you know, was pulled off that shelf of the cargo, um, cart, it just like dropped and hit the (laughs) ground pretty hard. I'm thinking, I hope the passenger is not looking at that, but, uh. Anyway, yeah. So I was, th- I was thinking to myself, man, they must get a really, really good workout with all the heavy bags out there. But it anyway, can't
4: be good for your back. No. it's a tough job.
1: So they uh, put them on the bag loader, and they in the, on the Mad Dog. They try to put everything as far aft as possible because I think that gives the best economy as far as uh, uh, you know the way the trim would be set on the uh, on the tail, on the uh, on the stabilizer, and I think the less deflection on the stabilizer. Uh, the less uh, drag that you're going to have and the better economy that you're going to get. So, I mean, they stuffed these things from the baggage uh, compartment floor to the ceiling. And in fact, we've had issues in the past where they they stuffed it so tightly that it was actually pressing up against the ceiling of the cargo compartment. And we have, you know, this airplane that I fly, it doesn't have wires going back to the controls. It has cables and Cables for all the uh, the rudder and the elevator and the stabilizer, all that kind of stuff, is back there running through behind the uh, behind the walls of the cargo compartment. And uh, they've had some issues in the past where you know the crews have had flight control issues <laughs> because oh, really? they stuffed it so so much. And every time I look in the when I'm doing my walk around, and I look up there and I'm thinking, I hope they're not stuffing them too tightly in the back. But
4: yeah, uh, it's well, a good uh, title for the show.
1: I hope they're not stuffing them too tightly. <laughs> yes. do stuff insert. them tightly. That, that's what she said. Stuff them anyway. tightly. <laughs> sorry, I don't know. Yeah, well, don't get carried away there, Steph.
2: I know. I need to stop. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> so uh, where were we? So as far as I know, in most of the airplanes that I've flown, there, there, are, no, there are no baffles. Uh, but I guess the ULDs, which stands for Uniform... Loading device. Unit Unit loading device. (laughs) Damn it. Uh, You know, I guess that's sort of a form of baffling because each ULD is a separate item. So in a way, there is a a baffling answer. It's
4: just a a lightweight shaped box uh, that is vaguely fuselage shaped. And on the base of it, it's uh, designed to engage with the movement system that exists on the loader and in the cargo hold of... um, of sophisticated airplanes so that
6: <laughs> i was waiting for some change of expression jeff sorry
4: <laughs> i wasn't i was ignoring you
6: uh, okay i heard so, you though uh, i mean i heard <laughs> you
1: but i'm a, appearing as if i don't uh, i'm not accepting your your uh <laughs> your barb
6: the floor the
4: floor of uh, the uh, cargo loaders and in the in the cargo hold itself are these uh, rotating motorized, uh, they're like uh, little balls. Um, they're probably the size of a, uh, a large um, softball or a baseball. And uh, the, the, they dr- can drive the, uh, the ULDs along and in, and uh, they're controlled by the uh, loaders. And they just basically um, a- automatically slide these devices into the hold and then scoot them up to the end. So when you do want to get someone's bag out of there that uh, you're offloading a passenger, uh, it can be sort of convenient because uh, we have a computer that tells us which uh, ULD it's in. In fact, whether it's top, middle, or bottom of that, so the guys know where to go to to go find the bag and unload it if a passenger hasn't pitched up. So would you
1: consider an airplane that had unit load devices um, modern?
4: Oh, no, no, because they, but no, 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 modern airplanes would have sort of. uh, uh, Yeah, so you're kind of gotten yourself
1: into a little predicament because the L 1011 had unit load devices.
4: Yeah, well, unfortunately, I guess they're a a device that is common throughout the entire aviation industry. So -hmm. even though it was designed back in the in distant past for the L-1011. We've yeah. had to keep that standard ever since. So uh, <laughs> okay. there you go. <laughs> uh, sort of. I'll give you half credit for
1: that. <laughs> I was wriggling <laughs> <up> there. <laughs> but as far as the, uh, the captain saying that you're not allowed to reseat yourself. Um, Paul, that is just uh, part of our uh, passenger harassment program. Uh, there's <laughs> it's no connection to reality at all. You can sit wherever the heck you want. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think, um, I guess it can it can be critical depending on your cargo load, your fuel load. Uh, for instance, if it's a if it's a short flight and it's not a, as you said, heavily popul- populated flight. Um, we sometimes do get messages from load planning that says that everybody has to stay in their seat and in fact, you know, stand by, stay at the gate until you get your weight and balance um, information because we may actually have to load sandbags into one of the cargo compartments to make sure that the, uh, the, the CG is in the safe envelope uh, for flight. So uh, that, that occasionally
4: happens. That's interesting. Did your plumbing just go then? That uh,
2: was uh, thunder outside my window.
4: That wasn't <laughs> me. <laughs> I thought it was just plumbing.
6: I
2: told you the storm arrived. So.
4: Uh, it first I thought, very close. Was that my stomach? It did, didn't it?
0: <laughs>
2: no, yeah. it
4: wasn't on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, oh. um, I was just going to say, uh, sitting on the left or the right uh, is probably not going to affect you one iota because you're so close to the center of gravity, it makes very little difference. However, um yeah, if you've got every, if you've got a whole bunch of kids uh, that are put as adults, uh, that would make a quite a significant difference to the weight. Um, and of course, the further you are from the moment arm, from the extent of gravity, the longer the moment arm, the bigger difference it would make. Well,
1: funny, you should mention that, Nick. oh the, yeah uh, the the other piece of feedback, Dave, he says listening to three twenty two when you were discussing passenger loading for weight and balance reminded me of a Qantas flight a few years back where the check-in staff placed a school group at the rear of a Boeing 737-800 and didn't label the group as children. Oh, well, ended never. Up, ended up having issues on takeoff. Greater pressure on the yoke for takeoff. Afterwards, worked out that the takeoff weight was three and a half to five tons over what it was actually. So what they they thought they were heavier than they actually were. And the, um, yeah, so I guess they were a bunch of kids and they they were... Marked as regular adult passengers, and so the the weight and balance was all out of whack.
4: It's interesting. I guess um, I'm just trying to think how they do control it when passengers want to pick their own seats. I guess if it's going to be a major problem, um, they would actually just change people's seat numbers at the gate. So, no. as the person that controls this in our company is uh, the TCO, the turnaround coordinator. And they, with a, uh, another system, uh, do all the weight and balance. And if they discovered they needed to move passengers, they would just have to move passengers. And as they boarded, they would change. You know, if you put your boarding pass in and the machine checked it, if, if you had a change of assignment, the, the lady would say, oh, I'm sorry, you need to go and speak to the clerk here. And they'd give you a different seat so, to correct that weight and balance problem. Which begs the
1: question, uh, an, an airline like Southwest Airlines that does not have assigned seating i wonder how they handle the situation Uh, steph you've flown them a lot Uh, i have
2: and i've flown them on um when i was actually much younger uh actually i think with um swimming trips a couple of times i at that time was a little bit older so i was a teenager but there were plenty of uh children flying with us and less less adults than children and i don't remember it just to my, my memory as a 16 or 17 year old, I don't remember there being a whole lot of shuffling around, but most of us chose to sit with our friends. So there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of groups of children sitting together, but I think it was pretty well spread out throughout the cabin because even still, when you get on the plane, some of those seats are already going to be taken by other groups of people. So interestingly, that was back in the days of when they had the uh, lounge seating. So I can remember sitting in, um, the lounge seating at the exit row. So you had a row of forward seats and a row of backward seats so you could face each other, which was always kind of fun.
4: We we, we... had to be
2: at least 15 to sit in the exit seat then. And we were like, oh. yes, we're, we're all 15.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and we're allowed to drink as well. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, 21, actually. 21. Yeah. 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 We we, are, we sometimes have a problem because, of um, course, we like you, Jeff, like to keep the center of gravity a little aft because the aircraft flies like three degrees nose up in its cruise attitude, and you don't really want to have any continuous control input to make that happen because it creates more drag. You'd rather the aircraft was trimmed to fly at that um, nose up attitude by weight distribution. Now, our our problem is the um, seating for the um, uh, hoisy-toisy passengers at the very front of the airplane that have the best seats that is the heaviest seating by far. It's really quite a, uh, a a weight in the front of the airplane. So we always try and bias the um, cargo towards the R. Uh And when, you, when they can't do that, you always notice that when you're trimming the airplane out and checking the trim, if you're right at the front of the trim wheel and there's a green band on the trim wheel to indicate what is uh, legal and what is when the aircraft goes out of trim when it's illegal, you can sometimes be very close to the front of that green band and then i'm scratching my head thinking oh, that's going to affect our fuel consumption and i'm wondering if perhaps we've got to put a little bit extra on because it should be taken into account by the computers but sometimes they're not quite as accurate as they should be and the fuel should be calculated for that but uh, sometimes i sneak a bit of extra fuel on just in case the burn is a bit higher better safe than sorry exactly what is the saying?
1: Um, You can never have too much fuel unless you're on fire.
4: (laughs) It sounded like that It's a good one. (laughs) I don't think the chief pilot agrees with me. No, they have
1: different priorities. Well, Paul and Dave, thank you very much for your questions and comments regarding passenger weight and balance or airplane weight and balance. Oh, wow. This is really good. I think, Nick, do you want to uh, do number 11? Because I think this person, Andy, that sent us a feedback, uh, you know. Uh, well,
4: yeah, I'd love to, actually. Thanks. Yeah, um, Andy Anderson, uh, those of you who are our deputies of Plainworth Tales may remember that uh, he's World War II pilot, uh, now in uh, uh, his 90s, lives in Australia, and uh, very closely related to me. Um, who uh, has found the show, would you believe? and uh, sent in some feedback because of, uh, well, I'll I'll read the letter. So, um, uh, dear Captain Nick, uh, I have just finished watching Airline Pilot Guy and thoroughly enjoyed it. The story of the cracked windscreen reminds me of an occasion of an overnight flight from Rio to Las Palmas. We just settled into the flight off the coast of Brazil, When the starboard windscreen crazed with an almighty bang. We immediately commenced an emergency descent, holding our breath that the entire windscreen would not blow out. Deviling out at 10,000 feet, it was time to make a few decisions, i.e., whether to return to Rio or continue the flight at 10,000 feet, and if we did that, how much extra fuel we would be burning and where we could land on the other side of the South Atlantic. The Cape Verde Islands were the obvious choice, and working out our flight time and fuel consumption within the safety requirements, we found not only could we reach the islands at dawn, and that was the time that the little airfield opened. Also, thank goodness for the VC-10, the landing strip was well within our requirements. The next job was to contact air traffic control, and that took some doing in those days, no such thing as satellites. At last, we managed to alter our flight plan, and with the help of HF Single Sideband, we managed to notify the company of our intentions so that they could position a replacement windscreen to Las Palmas, so causing as little delay as possible. The passengers were, of course, kept in the loop. And my biggest worry then, <clears throat> excuse me, was the intertropical front, now known as the intertropical convergence zone, which wanders, as you know, up and down the South Atlantic. On our route, we always had to cross it, and with the VC-10 at high altitude and good radar, we could usually weave between the thunderheads. At 10,000 feet, we were expecting a pretty rough ride. However, We must have done something right, because on that night the gods were kind to us, hardly a ripple the whole way. We must have woken the inhabitants of the island when we circled, but all went well. We refueled and finally landed in Las Palmas an hour or so before a new windscreen turned up. Keep up the good work on Airline Pilot Guy, as it brings me right up to date. Pop. P.S. I don't remember any management guys telling us we've done a good job.
6: <laughs> I see nothing has appreciated. changed yes, yes. over some the years. Some
2: things remain the same, right?
4: Well, yes. thanks very much, uh, Andy, or my pop. So uh, great feedback. Thank you. Very cool.
1: I wish I could get some of my family to listen to the show.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, is nice.
1: it is nice. Does does uh, your dad listen to the show, Steph? Yeah he does awesome Ah. oh well
4: <laughs> yeah that's great um, you just have to make do with the 1.9 million other listeners hey you know what yeah. my family
1: actually does listen to the show and because all of you listening are my family yay so, um, VC10 Dad, I, I can I have some more pocket money <laughs> sure <laughs> is it time for your allowance again yep alright let me get some money out of here out of the drawer uh the vc10 uh didn't realize it had that kind of range that's that's pretty awesome
4: yeah it did uh it it did uh one stop between uh london and and rio so yeah get across the atlantic no problem it was uh, a very capable airplane at the time considering how early it was excellent well
1: andy anderson thank you for sending in the feedback thank you for listening to the show Much appreciated, and uh, we're all big fans of you, and your son, too. Indeed. Don't forget he's got three sons. And
2: you're... We don't know them. The oldest?
4: (laughs) Are you the oldest? Youngest and least important, I am. (laughs) Ooh, okay. Yeah, I know, and I've been told that so many times. (laughs) Shall I edit this This out in post or uh, (laughs) leave it (laughs) in? Okay, I'll leave it in. (laughs) Exactly right. Ah, all right. It's the ground engineer, my uh, eldest brother, that continues to remind me of that. (laughs) Yes. Aren't siblings
1: great? Yep. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. They
0: are.
2: Yeah, let's, get,
1: let's get, a more positive uh, response there, Steph. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> Woo-hoo, yay. Okay. Uh, number 12, Alejo writes, and this is a good one. Alejo? We ha- Alejo. is it Alejo? I
0: think
2: so.
1: Alejo. I don't know. Alejo. Ale- Alejo. So uh, I love doing this show because uh, people listen to it. We talk about things and then somebody's listening to our, to what we're saying and going, Hey, I know something that you all don't because I have inside information. So let's read Alejo's email. Dear Captain Jeff, Steph, Nick, and Dana, you can guess by my name and the email, but for, for safety reasons, you can call me Alejo. I'm a 321 captain for Acme Blue, the biggest airline here in Vietnam. I wanted to comment about the Vietjet event. To my understanding, it was a training flight, and this was the the event we talked about. I think was it the last show, or the yes, show before? Last yes, show. it was. Yeah, uh, where we uh, uh, talked about the uh, the fact that the they got all kinds of warnings, and they got um, the uh, engine EGT over temp warnings and stall warnings, not uh, not aerodynamic stall, but uh, engine stall warnings, and some other ele- electrical warnings as well. Okay, so. To my understanding, it was a training flight composed of one captain with a cadet first officer with experience of no more than 300 total hours and one safety pilot on the jump seat that was a first officer with nearly 1,000 hours total experience. The engines got EGT over limit, and both engines stalled nearly at the same time. Due to the severity of the failures, the captain avoided visually the mountain disregarding the uh, EOSID. Is that a fix on out.
4: Oh, okay. Engine engine out out SID. Departure.
1: Standard instrument departure. And found the way to put the airplane safely on ground with only one engine that was also damaged. My hat is off for this crew. The airplane was grounded for investigation for a couple of weeks. Then they changed both engines. And now it's back online. As soon as I know something else, I'll let you know if you like. Yeah, we'd like. Thank you. It's good stuff. Always great to see this kind of thing. About the, I mean, not the event, but the inside information is always kind of cool. About the landing on uh, Cam Ron Airport in, okay, so that was that event. And that's oh, all we know about. Very well
4: handled by that crew, by the sounds of that.
1: Absolutely fantastic. it is. Mm-hmm. And they have mm-hmm. uh, some, um, he included some photos of the, um, the track of the flight out of Da Nang. And uh, also looks like the captain's uh handwritten narrative of the incident i think that's
2: for the second one
1: the second oh, incident oh yeah. okay you're right the you're
2: handwritten right. narrative is for the second one i think that tr-
1: the last the, thing there is the for the first is, thing is uh so i was that's what i wanted to talk about thank you steph Uh that last photo um shows all of the it's like a readout of all the um
4: yeah, this is a status, status post flight report that the aircraft will generate from its uh, own computer systems, and uh, this is usually is much more detailed than you would get. In and it shows the
1: exact like time that these messages yeah. were. Okay, go ahead, step, um, Nick.
4: Well, uh, they're saying that initially it got uh, uh, fuel inerting system full. Well, I don't think that's relevant to the problem. Okay. And at O322, uh, engine one EGT over limit and at exactly the same time, engine 2 EG over uh, over limit, then an engine 1 stall, then a second EGT 2 over limit, then an engine 1 again, EGT over limit. So it sounds like it was bouncing up and down uh, at the limit. And this is all within a period of, well, it's the same like, minute. Yeah, the same minute. Yeah. Then an engine 2 stall. So they have had both engines over temperature, both engines stall then more EGT over limits of both engines, and then engine one was shut down. Then they get the electrical fault because um, on the engine shutdown, uh, the essential buzz, the uh, AC, uh, alternating current essential buzz, uh, is supposed to be picked up by the running engine uh, because they've just shut down the engine that normally feeds it, and that hasn't been run. So then you get up with a fault message indicating that that Electrical distribution bus uh, has a fault. Uh, then they get uh, the autopilot fails. Uh, they get a electrical DC bus fault. So they've lost both their essential buses. Uh, I mean that is a serious number of faults, and uh, all within the the total thing was in a period of two minutes. So yeah, he's quite right. That was a desperate situation for the crew to be in. And uh, they obviously did a very good job getting it back on the ground so well. Yeah, and they're in an
1: area with high terrain, and uh, wow, yeah, our, all of our hats are off as well
4: <laughs> to, Absolutely, to yeah. this captain. Yeah. That, Brilliant uh, job by the crew, particularly considering the inexperience of the first officer.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and then the other incident involving a uh, Vietnam-based airline, uh, the Cam Ran Airport in Nha Trang. You know, he didn't say anything about my bad pronunciation of all that. I'll, oh, I'll I
2: think Well, move. just assume that it was correct, then.
4: I, I'm, that's what I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm assuming we're keeping it in for comedy.
2: That, too. I mean, I wasn't going to say that to
1: Jeff. Uh, you guys, I love you. There was an experienced captain from a foreign country, the United States, but he only had three months working for Vietnam Airlines, but flying a little bit more than uh, that one month. And the first officer was a local with nearly one year experience. So not a very experienced crew. Uh, The first officer was pilot flying and it was first landing of the captain at that runway. And he uh, asked two times, he asked his first officer twice that if that was the runway when they were coming in. And uh, this airport does not have any information about the new runway on the approach charts. Also, no, no, Tam no, TAMs at that time. They recently painted the runway so they both runways were separated for about 30 meters. That's pretty close 30 meters, yeah, it is, isn't it? With the same markings.
4: I, I can only assume that they're not actually going to keep both runways open. What's the point of having two runways so close? Yeah,
1: they must be like going to use the other one as a taxiway or something, maybe. Yeah, you I think don't, so. Yeah, I mean. Indicating 2-0. There is no 2-0 left, no 2-0 right. Both are 2-0. Also, the pappies uh, were off without any NOTAM as well. Oh, great. Yeah. Before, it was only a VOR approach that required sim training for captains. But since six months ago, they implemented an ILS for runway 02 and an RNAV for runway 20. So new hires will not be familiar with the airport in the sim and underline training. The ATC has... A radar since two months ago, but there was only one ATC guy providing. That's a good podcast, by the way. ATCguy.com. Uh, providing weather. <laughs> <a sister> wet-
0: <laughs> the airline pilot guy. <laughs>
1: the airline traffic controller guy. Yeah. Uh, providing weather info, delivery, ground, tower, and control. So the guy at the time was very busy and uh, he wasn't uh, able to notice the mistake of the crew. And at the, <laughs> my uh, editorial comment here. If the runway is only separated by 30 meters, I'm not sure how he would, even if he was staring mm-hmm. at the airplane coming in, I'm not sure how he could determine whether or not he was lined up on the correct yeah. runway or not. Anyway, um, on rush hours, the ATC easily control one airplane arriving and departing every three minutes. Wow. Busy place wow. for very one person light staff. Yeah. Ugh. All crew and ATC has been suspended until further... Advice, And after the event, they published (laughs) and after the event, they published no TAMs plus charts, plus an airport brief too late. (laughs) Alejo (laughs) says, yes, we agree. Yeah, they're covering their posteriors, apparently. And uh, we were wondering about how or uh, the article that I was reading was wondering about how they were going to get the airplane to the other part of the airport. And he says the airplane was towed to the ramp. And uh, so he continues, I wish all the best for the APG crew and one advice for Dana in his upgrade. Be careful in the simulator when you sit on the left seat for the first time. Based on my personal experience, you will get super dizzy on the first day on the, you know, when you're in the sim. And it's very difficult to do things with your right hand, for example, moving the seat or locating any switch or selector for sure. Every time you look for the checklist, you will turn to the wrong side. It's very weird and funny. At the same time. Yeah. Probably funny for the other person you're flying with (laughs) (laughs) for the instructor. Yeah. For them as Uh. well. (laughs) Dana, you have the best intro on the show. Yeah. He likes the, uh, the latest intro for, I like it too. It's good stuff. Um, anyway, regards Alejo and he sent in the, uh, the photos and the information. I mean, Alejo, wow. Thank you so much. It's so nice that you're listening over there in Vietnam. And I know that English is not your, your native language. And the effort that you made to uh, send this, uh, feedback in English was just above and beyond. And, uh, our hats are off to you for sending this to us. And it's always interesting to see, get the behind the scenes kind of look.
0: Yeah.
2: Great information. Really detailed. We really appreciate it.
4: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It explains a lot. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I only hope that the airline are suitably uh, sympathetic with the uh, American pilot, the American captain who uh, ended up on the wrong runway, because it sounds like all the cards were stacked
5: against him.
1: Yeah. I think so too. And, and interestingly, in the um, photo that he sent of the uh, handwritten narrative from the captain, you know, he said, um, "I sincerely apologize for this occurrence, and I will cooperate with any requests." So obviously, he's like bending over backwards to say, "Look, here's the situation. I was read, led down the primrose path, in my opinion, and but I realize, you know, I I, I messed up, and uh, I'll do anything I can to assist." And uh, fixing this. So That's
4: actually a, a great attitude to have, uh, and I applaud him for that. Because uh, we, well, I wish we'd had more of it, or have more of it in the alarm. We're pre- we're pretty good generally at holding our hands up and admitting our mistakes. But uh, yeah, that that was well said. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and without reading it all, it's actually particularly nice because it just offers details without sounding like excuses. You know, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. here's here's the facts. It was this, this, and this. I'm sorry. Let me know what I can do.
1: We, we yeah. might as well read it, Steph. You want to read it?
2: Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Says landed new runway two zero at what was that VVCR? Yeah. Category? How do you say that in Chinese? <laughs> 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 uh, I have to go back and find. it. That's okay. Cameron <laughs> Airport in uh, Trang.
1: Huangchengcheng. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: After RNAV two zero approach runway marking was marked two zero and no other markings uh, for two zero were readable on any other pavements. New runway not depicted on charts and no cross or exit. New runway threshold. No pappy lights illuminated. I realized after landing that it was a new runway under construction and I brought the aircraft to full stop. I sincerely apologize for this occurrence and I will cooperate
4: with any requests. Yeah. Good safety attitude, Mm -hmm. I think. Absolutely. And I I know, I hope that uh, Vietnam Airlines have a no jeopardy policy from this sort of thing. So when guys put up their hands and go, I've made a mistake, but... You know they are mitigating circumstances. So I hope they're taking that
1: into account. I hope so too.
4: Okay. Um, let's see.
1: Philip, as a nineteen-year-old aspiring economics major at California State University SM, I got lost that right in San Diego, California. California State University. What would SM stand for?
4: Santa Maria. San-, Santa Maria? San Marcos.
1: San Marcos. I don't know. I don't know.
2: That California State University San Marcos in North San Diego.
1: Okay, was that in here somewhere? Well, no. no. Okay. She's good. Clever. She's a doctor. Wow. That's why we have Steph because she's the smart one. Absolutely. The Google. Oh.
2: San Marcos must be somewhere near San Diego. It's in oh, so it's a suburban city in the North County area of San Diego County. Oh,
1: North County, there San Diego. Go. Um. oh uh, great brewery. Um, Stone. Yeah. So, so Steph
4: knows the universities, you know the breweries. I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you
1: can see where our priorities <laughs> are. Priorities.
2: Priorities.
4: I'm not a
1: doctor. <laughs> I'm lucky enough to listen to your podcast every day on my commute to school. Thank you all for the hard work you guys put into making this amazing podcast possible. You are welcome, Philip. It's our pleasure, actually. Just a few questions. Has anyone of the crew been to San Diego? Yes. Yes. I have many times. Thoughts? No, I usually don't have many. Also, has anyone flown into SAN San Diego, the Lindbergh field, I believe? Yes, I have. Lastly, Captain Nick, do you prefer the A330 or 340? And is the a three hundred and forty six hundred your favorite variant of the 340? I can answer that question. Yes. Again, thanks for the amazing podcast. Wishing you guys unlimited visibility. Thank you, Philip. Um, And uh, he has a little bit, uh, he has a post script here. Oh, butchal. he's
4: swearing. Look, he's swearing.
1: Is he? Yeah. Oh. He, he says 777. Ah. Uh,
4: whereas we prefer, 777.
1: Going to Thailand via Philippines Airlines 777-300ER in August. Any tips on traveling to Thailand, if any of the
4: crew has been? Yep. Stay away from the 777. <laughs> and the bathroom I don't think that was exactly his question. <laughs> Pat Pong, mate. Go there. If only for the light show.
1: Okay. Let's uh uh
6: family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family <laughs> show.
1: Yeah. That's all we're gonna say about Thailand. It's a beautiful country. Please, um, I've never been. Sorry, not helpful. i and I've only been very briefly. Uh we landed when I was flying the C one hundred forty one starlifter in the Air Force at uh, we we landed at Utapau uh for fuel. That's it. So I, well, I really, you
4: didn't manage to break
6: it there? What's the matter with you guys?
1: I don't know. I was a new guy, and I didn't know what was going on. I oh, had no authority. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, getting back to, let's see, the first question. Uh, yeah, I think we've all, well, I don't know. Nick, have you been to San Diego? No. Okay. Beautiful place, by the way. Uh, nice. And I, I heard that uh, Steph piped up, piped in, said mm-hmm. that she has. Have you ever flown into SAN, Steph? As a passenger, I'm sure. As you a have.
2: passenger, yes. Yeah. Me personally, flying the airplane, no. But it is a neat approach into that airport.
1: It is, and I think it's overblown. A lot of people make a big deal of it because of. Uh, I don't know if they've changed this. It's been a while since I've been in there, but it used to be if you're landing to the west, you Correct. have to yeah. come in a very on the on the glide path. You get kind of close to. A parking there's garage. Some,
2: yeah, there's some buildings, some structures to the just to the north, correct? Yes. The right side of the aircraft. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If I remember. And correctly. It, you know, it's it's like everybody freaks out about that, but it's really it's it's not that big of a deal. It really isn't. Um, I, I flew in there a lot in the seven twenty seven, and then when I checked out as first officer in the L ten eleven, the um, uh, my initial operating experience. Had us going into L.A. and then what we'd do at night, we'd fly the l 11, almost empty uh, down to San Diego to get it out of the way of, you know, the gates and stuff up at LAX. And I think they used it the next morning to fly from San Diego to Hawaii. Uh, but uh, so I looked at the fact that San Diego was on my rotation, my my trip. And I I was telling my wife that, oh, well, at least, you know, when you're doing an initial op- operating experience, usually every single leg is your leg. I mean, they, they want you to fly as much as possible, but when I saw San Diego on there. I thought, well, that's a special requirements airport that they're not going to let me, you have to be a captain to fly into San Diego. So I was making, you know, that point, um, in the airplane. I think when we were heading to LA, I said, yeah, it looks like I get a break. I don't have to fly into San Diego and the, and the, uh, uh, air, the line check airman looked over at me and said, yeah, well, that's true. Except if you're flying with a line check airman and said, it's your leg from LA to San Diego. And I went, okay. Uh, but (laughs) no big deal. Um, it it really was a, a no, no issue thing at all. It's not the longest runway in the world, but it's not super short either. So
2: I'm sure no different than flying into midway. No, Chicago.
1: No or national at the time yeah, uh, they've extended yeah. the runway now, but, uh, yeah. Or, or LaGuardia, you know, flying that, <laughs> flying that L ten eleven 11 into LaGuardia. was like, really, we're, <laughs> we're going to land there. Huh? Yeah. Anyway. Um, so that's what I have to say about so San Diego, beautiful city, uh, great people, great airport. And, uh, yeah. Uh, Captain Nick, do you prefer yeah. the a three thirty 30 or the three forty?
4: Uh, the 340, uh, and um, actually the 34600. We don't have any of the 34300s 300 anymore. Uh, the 34300 is, uh, uh, people joke about it. They don't specify which type. They just say, oh, the 340, uh, very underpowered. You know, it gets hair drawn. Yeah, I think I've heard right. somebody they get zeb on due to the curvature of the earth um <laughs> so we've all had that
0: <laughs>
2: it, it falls away from from the aircraft as it accelerates more.
4: exactly right so the six the 340 300 uh, was a little that way It had a, a quite a poor rate of climb the 600 uh was mar- remarkably different for a start it was like over 100 tons heavier and it's got Trent 500s very powerful engines in fact um the uh Engines will climb you above the capability of the wing to support you. So, you know, instead of being limited by the engine thrust to your max altitude, you're actually limited by the wing performance um, because the engines are so good. So, uh, it, you know, I, I get a little bit upset when people, uh, no, I don't really. But uh, I, I like pointing out that the 600. Oh, you should is- see him. He gets very upset. He starts pounding the wall. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, banging my head against the wall. The, the 600 is a lovely airplane. It's uh, it's sophisticated. It's big. It's long. It's uh. I love the proportions
1: um, of it. Um, the the, the three hundred doesn't look right. It doesn't look elegant. Uh, it
4: looked it, a bit like a, a little seven o seven. The uh, three hundred. And it, it's like you know. And the engine's very slim. Yeah, yeah a little bit nose down. Yeah, nose are. down. When but the, uh, the six hundred is really pretty. Yeah, I think so. Look, great looking airplane. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it was when when we first got them brand new, we were the launch customer. Uh, in the UK. So, uh, you know, it was uh, right from absolute brain spanking you out of the hangars. They were great, great airplanes. They still are. We've still got a number of them.
1: And uh, the best pilots at uh, Acme Red fly those things.
4: Of course, yes. All the other pilots (laughs) are out of work because the finliner isn't actually doing anything much. (laughs) Uh, We can't go one episode without
1: dinging the uh, 787, can we? I think we've done uh, it several times this year. Well, yeah, we, we have. have.
4: It's entirely justified, I'm sorry.
1: Dead horse comes to mind, Steph. <laughs> I know.
4: Yeah. That's a um, new name for it. Thanks,
1: Jeff. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Joe. <laughs> give <him> any more. <laughs> like he needs any more fodder.
0: No.
1: Joe uh, writes from Casper, K-C-P-R, Kilo, Charlie, Papa, Romeo. Captain Jeff and crew finally got caught up over the weekend with APG Podcasts and listened intently to the latest plane tales regarding lost aircraft. Surprisingly, there are a number of aircraft, mostly general aviation, that are never found or found years later. We just lost a Cessna 206 in the Colorado Rockies this winter, and as of yet, the aircraft and the pilot have not been found. I also give you an example of Steve Fawcett, who went on a short local flight, and despite one of the largest searches in history, with over 1.6 million dollars spent in the effort, his aircraft was not located during the search. Some identification and a few bones were found over a year later by a hiker. I think this was aliens, actually. Um, I fly. I'm just kidding. I fly uh, as a mission pilot for the Civil Air Patrol. Thank you very much for the for the service there, Joe. Um, Air Force Auxiliary and would like to pass on a few items for your listeners to consider who are flying smaller GA aircraft. First off, I'm not an advocate of ELTs, either the older 121.5 and the newer 406 beacons, uh, which still have a 121.5 carrier. While many may disagree with my opinion, we have had some struggles over the years performing electronic searches with ELTs. I won't go into a great deal in the essence of keeping this brief, but they don't always work as they were intended. While I wouldn't go strip, at, strip it out of my aircraft and you legally can't, I wouldn't bet my life on an ELT. I do believe in and put my money into a PLB or personal locator beacon. I am partial to my spot, that's SPOT, but there are others that work equally equally as well. I keep my spot located within an arm's reach, and it is set up to ping every few minutes so that your friends and family can track your flight almost in real time. Second, keep your cell phone on, and if you have time and an emergency, dial 911. Leave it in that mode while you deal with your emergency, and there is no need to see if anyone answers. You may not realize it, but there are search personnel who are trained in cell phone and radar track forensics. Uh, Search and rescue personnel have used this cell phone data to locate missing aircraft and at a minimum narrow the search area by the use of your cell phone data. Finally, while you may not want to deal with filing a flight plan, although I would never discourage that the lost aircraft in Colorado did not file, I would strongly encourage everyone to use VFR flight following. I've only been turned down once by ATC, and when you do use this service, it helps in making you a better pilot. The bonus to this is you may get to listen in on uh, one of the APG crew working the comms. I also would encourage pilots to keep a handheld radio in your flight bag. If you do survive a crash, most likely the aircraft radios will be destroyed. This gives the pilot an additional way to try and communicate with other aircraft overhead on guard and search and rescue personnel. Finally, the first AOPA fly-in of the year is scheduled for Missoula, Montana in June. There should be a number of pilots attending, and I hope that we can get an APG meetup in the works. Weather permitting, the flying cowboys will be there. Love the show. Congrats to Dana for making captain, and I appreciate all the effort that the APG crew puts forth to keep us wannabes afflicted with the APG syndrome. Cheers and tailwinds. Joe in Wyoming. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Yeah, the cowboys, flying Flying cowboys. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And again, thank you so much for uh, being a uh, mission pilot for the Civil Air Patrol. That's an amazing job. Uh, What exactly does that mean, Jeff? Because being an outsider, Uh, the the Civil Air Patrol, as he mentions, is is an auxiliary unit of the uh, Air Force, and it's it's a civilian unit. So you're not; these aren't Air Force officers or, or Air Force. Um people but it's it's a function of the air force and it's uh an organization that goes out and helps find um you know helps augment search and rescue missions um i I don't know all the things they do but they uh, that's the big thing that they do that i can recall is they uh they they're a, a factor a major factor in uh doing search and rescue missions and yes. they typically That's use general aviation airplanes. Um, you know, yeah. A lot of
2: times they're using 182s. That's what they use in this area.
1: 182s, 172s, and I, I remember—is um, it Raleigh Durham? I think when you're taxiing out, I, I often see they—they um, they usually have a nice paint job, you know, with the Civil Air Patrol stuff oh, yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's it's so i, I guess it's kind of a, a quasi-military unit, although without being a full military uh, commitment. Okay,
4: sounds good. So they're all volunteers. They do it in their own time. They're yeah. probably not paid, or right. I don't know, I'm guessing. But actually, uh, yeah, well, yeah, we have a lot of show.
1: a lot of folks that listen to the show are involved with the Civil Air Patrol, and okay. uh, yeah. So uh, we we really, in fact, I, I was just thinking about the Houston meetup that we had, and uh, one of the folks there was one of the uh, one of the high ranking people in that region for the Civil Air Patrol. Um, and it's just an amazing, it's a really great program and it's a great way for, uh, young folks interested in aviation to, um, get involved with aviation. And, um, I'm not sure exactly what's required to get, you know, to get a position flying and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, yeah,
4: of course that example that uh, Joe uh, brings to mind of Steve Fawcett, um, it was incredible really, uh, cause, uh, you know, that guy has had a huge, um, uh, Amount of money, uh, and I'm sure his family spent. Well, they said one over 1. 1.6 million trying to find him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, uh, you think to yourself, well, how on earth can something the size of an aircraft go missing and and it'll just be found by accident a year later or so? So mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it does remind you. And I'm I was kind of in my last plane tale, not the one, this one, the previous one, saying. You know, wasn't it remarkable that these aircraft wasn't found in Alaska? Well, that's a lot more uh, evil territory, harder to find things, than uh, it would be um, down uh, where in Colorado, even even in the Rockies. Yeah, yeah
1: the population yeah, just, density in our country, uh, especially in the West, is very. <laughs> I think Wyoming, especially is probably Wyoming, the least you yeah. know, densely populated of any of the states. Um, And, you know, when you when you hear people talk about, you know, worried about overpopulation and everything else, you think I do a lot of flying and uh, you need to get out of the city occasionally and see that (laughs) this is a big country. There's a lot
2: (laughs) of empty space out there still. Yes. Um, Yeah. Population ranked 50th. (laughs) There are 50 states. Density is 5.97 per square mile. Which is actually 49th. So maybe Montana is fewer or Alaska.
1: Could
4: be. Yeah. So yeah. about six people every square mile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's lots of. Ever, how do you ever find a girlfriend? I mean, you just <laughs> keep wandering around. Well, like like most of somewhere. those
2: people are in a city. In, <laughs> That's why they have sheep, like, Cheyenne. Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> I hope nobody heard me say that. <laughs> no.
6: <Okay. laughs> I did. Okay. We heard it. We all heard, heard it.
4: it. Darn it.
1: Um, you, you know what uh, thank you Liz for adding the extras there because we had such a sparse news uh, folder this week but I'm gonna give all of you listening a treat we're gonna make it a shorter episode this week and we're gonna we're gonna move those uh that Liz uh, very kindly added to uh, the next episode if that's all right with you all unless you want to keep going
2: no it's fine by um, me I mean Nick's got me. stuff to do in the morning, so yeah,
1: yeah, I think it's good a good place to stop. um we covered everything we intended to and uh, uh, I think it was a, a good show. Thank you very much, all of you for your great feedback and uh, the two of you for helping me answer the questions.
4: Do you think we made fifty percent this week?
1: I think we're awfully darn close. I think so. And just
2: to back up some guess that I, I was just giving out, I said it was either Montana or Alaska. That was probably fiftieth for population density. It's Alaska, and okay. Montana's forty eighth.
4: That makes sense. So, yeah. Oh, well, you know, we didn't quite make fifty percent. Well, no, I, I, I wasn't entirely. Gosh sure. darn it, Steph! Knew, we were so that, close. I, I, because I
1: went to find it. it anyway. Well, you <laughs> know, so. don't don't start using other source documents for you know judging the accuracy of our show please yes. we have a hard enough time as it is um, so uh, if you want to learn more about the show if you already don't know you know like where where have you been um, head over to airline dot com and you can find out about the crew and the community merchandise the coffee fund and uh, so much more uh, plane Tales, by the way has its own page as well and you can even sign up for a your own podcast feed for that wonderful oh, uh, some reviews would Tales. be
4: great oh yeah well hey are you telling me that nobody is going and giving reviews Nick well I think we've probably had lots of downloads and I think I've got about seven reviews oh yes. come on a few, folks, a few more would be great
1: even please. if you don't use iTunes please go over to iTunes make a good review a great review please of the Plaintail so more people will be made aware of it. That'd be really, really cool. We do appreciate that. If you want to support us financially, we really appreciate that as well. And again, uh, AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. We have um, apps for your uh, smartphones and tablets, both iOS and Android. And again, in the show notes, there's information about that as well as on the website. We're on social media too, because heck, you got to be, right? All the cool kids are
2: doing it. So head on over to Twitter. We're at APG crew. You can find all of our individual contact information posted there as well. And then on Facebook, facebook.com slash I all kinds of information, things that community members post, uh, aviation related news and events, and meetup information as well. And speaking of
1: meetups and other community events, I'll hand it over to Hillel. Yeah, he's going to tell us if you want to be a slacker.
7: APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at hi11e1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at hi11e1, and see you in Slack.
1: Thank you, Hillel. Yeah, He is the one that manages that uh, team. And a lot of good stuff going on over there. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all.
4: Bye, everybody.
0: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Good day.